Book four, chapters one through eighteen of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book four, chapter one. Having begun to speak of the city of God, I have thought it necessary first of all to reply to its enemies, who, eagerly pursuing earthly joys and gaping after transitory things, throw the blame of all the sorrow they suffer in them, rather through the compassion of God in admonishing than his severity in punishing, on the Christian religion, which is the one salutary and true religion. And since there is among them also an unlearned rabble, they are stirred up as by the authority of the learned to hate us more bitterly thinking in their inexperience that things which have happened unwontedly in their days were not wont to happen in other times gone by. And whereas this opinion of theirs is confirmed even by those who know that it is false, and yet dissemble their knowledge in order that they may seem to have just cause for murmuring against us, it was necessary, from books in which their authors recorded and published the history of bygone times, that it might be known, to demonstrate that it is far otherwise than they think and at the same time to teach that the false gods whom they openly worshipped, or still worship in secret, are most unclean spirits, and most malignant and deceitful demons, even to such a pitch that they take delight in crimes, which, whether real or only fictitious, are yet their own, which it has been their will to have celebrated in honour of them at their own festivals, so that human infirmity cannot be called back from the perpetration of damnable deeds, so long as authority is furnished for imitating them, that seems even divine. These things we have proved not from our own conjectures, but partly from recent memory, because we ourselves have seen such things celebrated, and to such deities, partly from the writings of those who have left these things on record to posterity, not as if in reproach, but as an honour of their own gods. Thus Varro, a most learned man among them, and of the weightiest authority, when he made separate books concerning things human and things divine, distributing some among the human, others among the divine, according to the special dignity of each, placed the scenic plays not at all among things human, but among things divine. Though certainly, if only there were good and honest men in the state, the scenic plays ought not to be allowed even among things human." And this he did not on his own authority, but because, being born and educated at Rome, he found them among the divine things. Now as we briefly stated in the end of the first book what we intended afterwards to discuss, and as we have disposed of a part of this in the next two books, we see what our readers will expect us now to take up. CHAPTER Two. We had promised, then, that we would say something against those who attribute the calamities of the Roman Republic to our religion, and that we would recount the evils, as many and great as we could remember or might deem sufficient, which that city, or the provinces belonging to its empire, had suffered before their sacrifices were prohibited, all of which would beyond doubt have been attributed to us, if our religion had either already shone on them, or had thus prohibited their sacrilegious rites. These things we have, as we think, fully disposed of in the second and third books, treating in the second of evils and morals, which alone or chiefly are to be accounted evils, and in the third of those which only fools dread to undergo, namely those of the body or of outward things, which for the most part the good also suffer. But those evils by which they themselves become evil, they take, I do not say patiently, but with pleasure. 
and how few evils have I related concerning that one city and its empire, not even all down to the time of Caesar Augustus? What if I had chosen to recount and enlarge on those evils, not which men have inflicted on each other, such as the devastations and destructions of war, but which happen in earthly things from the elements of the world itself? Of such evils Apuleius speaks briefly in one passage of that book which he wrote, De Mundo, saying that all earthly things are subject to change, overthrow, and destruction. For, to use his own words, by excessive earthquakes the ground has burst asunder, and cities with their inhabitants have been clean destroyed. By sudden rains whole regions have been washed away. Those also which formerly had been continents have been insulated by strange and new-come waves, and others by the subsiding of the sea have been made passable by the foot of man. By winds and storms cities have been overthrown. Fires have flashed forth from the clouds by which regions in the east being burnt up have perished, and on the western coasts the like destructions have been caused by the bursting forth of waters and floods. So formerly from the lofty craters of Etna rivers of fire kindled by God have flowed like a torrent down the steeps. If I had wished to collect from history wherever I could these and similar instances, where should I have finished what happened even in those times before the name of Christ had put down those of their idols, so vain and hurtful to true salvation? I promised that I should also point out which of their customs, and for what cause the true God, in whose power all kingdoms are, had deigned to favour to the enlargement of their empire and how those whom they think gods can have profited them nothing, but much rather hurt them by deceiving and beguiling them, so that it seems to me I must now speak of these things, and chiefly of the increase of the Roman Empire. For I have already said not a little, especially in the second book, about the many evils introduced into their manners by the hurtful deceits of the demons whom they worshipped as gods. But throughout all the three books already completed, where it appeared suitable, we have set forth how much succor God, through the name of Christ, to whom the barbarians, beyond the custom of war, paid so much honour, has bestowed on the good and bad, according as it is written, who maketh his son to rise on the good and the evil, and giveth rain to the just and the unjust. CHAPTER three. Now, therefore, let us see how it is that they dare to ascribe the very great extent and duration of the Roman Empire to those gods whom they contend that they worship honourably, even by the obsequies of vile games and the ministry of vile men. Although I should like first to inquire for a little what reason, what prudence there is, in wishing to glory in the greatness and extent of the empire, when you cannot point out the happiness of men who are always rolling, with dark fear and cruel lust, in warlike slaughters and in blood which, whether shed in civil or foreign war, is still human blood, so that their joy may be compared to glass in its fragile splendour, of which one is horribly afraid lest it should be suddenly broken in pieces. That this may be more easily discerned, let us not come to naught by being carried away with empty boasting, or blunt the edge of our attention by loud-sounding names of things, when we hear of peoples, kingdoms, provinces. But let us suppose a case of two men, for each individual man, like one letter in a language, is, as it were, the element of a city or kingdom, however far-spreading in its occupation of the earth. Of these two men, let us suppose that one is poor, or rather of middling circumstances, the other is very rich. But the rich man is anxious with fears, pining with discontent, burning with covetousness, never secure, always uneasy, panting from the perpetual strife of his enemies, adding to his patrimony indeed by these miseries to an immense degree, and by these additions also heaping up most bitter cares. 
but that other man of moderate wealth is contented with a small and compact estate, most dear to his own family, enjoying the sweetest peace with his kindred neighbors and friends, in piety religious, benignant in mind, healthy in body, in life frugal, in manners chaste, in conscience secure. I know not whether any one can be such a fool that he dare hesitate which to prefer. As, therefore, in the case of these two men, so in two families, in two nations, in two kingdoms, this test of tranquillity holds good, and if we apply it vigilantly and without prejudice, we shall quite easily see where the mere show of happiness dwells, and where real felicity. Wherefore, if the true God is worshipped, and if he is served with genuine rights and true virtue, it is advantageous that good men should long reign both far and wide. Nor is this advantageous so much to themselves as to those over whom they reign. For, so far as concerns themselves, their piety and probity, which are great gifts of God, suffice to give them true felicity, enabling them to live well the life that now is, and afterwards, to receive that which is eternal. In this world, therefore, the dominion of good men is profitable, not so much for themselves as for human affairs. But the dominion of bad men is hurtful chiefly to themselves who rule, for they destroy their own souls by greater license and wickedness while those who are put under them in service are not hurt except by their own iniquity. For to the just all the evils imposed on them by unjust rulers are not the punishment of crime, but the test of virtue. Therefore the good man, although he is a slave, is free, but the bad man, even if he reigns, is a slave, and that not of one man, but, what is far more grievous, of as many masters as he has vices, of which vices, when the divine scripture treats, it says, for of whom any man is overcome, to the same he is also the bond-slave. Chapter 4 Justice being taken away, then, what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men. It is ruled by the authority of a prince, it is knit together by the pact of the confederacy. The booty is divided by the law agreed on. If by the admittance of abandoned men this evil increases to such a degree that it holds places, fixes abodes, takes possession of cities, and subdues peoples, it assumes the more plainly the name of a kingdom, because the reality is now manifestly conferred on it, not by the removal of covetousness, but by the addition of impunity. Indeed, that was an apt and true reply which was given to Alexander the Great by a pirate who had been seized. For when that king had asked the man what he meant by keeping a hostile possession of the sea, he answered with bold pride, What thou meanest by seizing the whole earth? But because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a robber, whilst thou who dost it with a great fleet art styled emperor. Chapter 5 I shall not therefore stay to inquire what sort of men Romulus gathered together, seeing he deliberated much about them how, being assumed out of that life they led into the fellowship of his city, they might cease to think of the punishment they deserved, the fear of which had driven them to greater villainies, so that henceforth they might be made more peaceable members of society. But this I say, that the Roman Empire, which by subduing many nations had already grown great and an object of universal dread, was itself greatly alarmed, and not only with much difficulty avoided a disastrous overthrow, because a mere handful of gladiators in Campania, escaping from the games, had recruited a great army, appointed three generals, and most widely and cruelly devastated Italy. Let them say what God aided these men, so that from a small and contemptible band of robbers they attained to a kingdom feared even by the Romans, who had such great forces and fortresses. Or will they deny that they were divinely aided because they did not last long? As if indeed the life of any man whatever lasted long. 
In that case, too, the gods aid no one to reign, since all individuals quickly die. Nor is sovereign power to be reckoned a benefit, because in a little time in every man, and thus in all of them one by one, it vanishes like a vapour. For what does it matter to those who worship the gods under Romulus, and are long since dead, that after their death the Roman Empire has grown so great, while they plead their causes before the powers beneath? Whether those causes are good or bad, it matters not to the question before us. And this is to be understood of all those who carry with them the heavy burden of their actions, having in the few days of their life swiftly and hurriedly passed over the stage of the imperial office, although the office itself has lasted through long spaces of time, being filled by a constant succession of dying men. If, however, even those benefits which last only for the shortest time are to be ascribed to the aid of the gods, these gladiators were not a little aided, who broke the bonds of their servile condition, fled, escaped, raised a great and most powerful army, obedient to the will and orders of their chiefs, and much feared by the Roman majesty, and remaining unsubdued by several Roman generals, seized many places, and having won very many victories, enjoyed whatever pleasures they wished, and did what their lust suggested, and, until at last they were conquered, which was done with the utmost difficulty, lived sublime and dominant. But let us come to greater matters. CHAPTER six. Justinus, who wrote Greek or rather foreign history in Latin, and briefly, like Trogus Pompeius, whom he followed, begins his work thus. In the beginning of the affairs of peoples and nations the government was in the hands of kings, who were raised to the height of this majesty not by courting the people, but by the knowledge good men had of their moderation. The people were held bound by no laws, the decisions of the princes were instead of laws. It was the custom to guard rather than to extend the boundaries of the empire, and kingdoms were kept within the bounds of each ruler's native land. Ninus, king of the Assyrians, first of all, through new lust of empire, changed the old and, as it were, ancestral custom of nations. He first made war on his neighbors, and wholly subdued as far as to the frontiers of Libya the nations as yet untrained to resist. And a little after, he says, Ninus established by constant possession the greatness of the authority he had gained. Having mastered his nearest neighbors, he went on to others, strengthened by the accession of forces, and by making each fresh victory the instrument of that which followed, subdued the nations of the whole East. Now with whatever fidelity to fact either he or Trogus may in general have written, for that they sometimes told lies is shown by other more trustworthy writers, yet it is agreed among other authors that the kingdom of the Assyrians was extended far and wide by King Ninus and indeed it lasted so long that the Roman Empire has not yet attained the same age. For as those who write have treated of chronological history, this kingdom endured for twelve hundred and forty years from the first year in which Ninus began to reign, until it was transferred to the Medes. But to make war on your neighbors, and thence to proceed to others, and through mere lust of dominion to crush and subdue people who do you no harm, what else is this to be called than great robbery? CHAPTER seven. If this kingdom was so great and lasting without the aid of the gods, why is the ample territory and long duration of the Roman Empire to be ascribed to the Roman gods? For whatever is the cause in it, the same is in the other also. But if they contend that the prosperity of the other also is to be attributed to the aid of the gods, I ask of which? For the other nations whom Ninus overcame did not then worship other gods. Or, if the Assyrians had gods of their own, who, so to speak, were more skilful workmen in the construction and preservation of the empire, whether are they dead, since they themselves have also lost the empire, 
or, having been defrauded of their pay, or promised a greater, have they chosen rather to go over to the Medes, and from them again to the Persians, because Cyrus invited them, and promised them something still more advantageous. This nation, indeed, since the time of the kingdom of Alexander the Macedonian, which was as brief in duration as it was great in extent, has preserved its own empire, and at this day occupies no small territories in the east. If this is so, then either the gods are unfaithful, who desert their own and go over to their enemies, which Camillus, who was but a man, did not do, when, being victor and subduer of a most hostile state, although he had felt that Rome, for whom he had done so much, was ungrateful, yet afterwards, forgetting the injury and remembering his native land, he freed her again from the Gauls. Or they are not so strong as gods ought to be, since they can be overcome by human skill or strength. Or if, when they carry on war among themselves, the gods are not overcome by men, but some gods who are peculiar to certain cities are perchance overcome by other gods, it follows that they have quarrels among themselves which they uphold, each for his own part. Therefore a city ought not to worship its own gods, but rather others who aid their own worshippers. Finally, whatever may have been the case as to this change of sides, or flight, or migration, or failure in battle on the part of the gods, the name of Christ had not yet been proclaimed in those parts of the earth when these kingdoms were lost and transferred through great destructions and war. For if, after more than twelve hundred years, when the kingdom was taken away from the Assyrians, the Christian religion had there already preached another eternal kingdom, and put a stop to the sacrilegious worship of false gods, what else would the foolish men of that nation have said but that the kingdom which had been so long preserved could be lost for no other cause than the desertion of their own religions and the reception of Christianity? In which foolish speech that might have been uttered, let those we speak of observe their own likeness and blush, if there is any sense of shame in them because they have uttered similar complaints. Although the Roman Empire is afflicted rather than changed, a thing which has befallen it in other times also, before the name of Christ was heard, and it has been restored after such affliction, a thing which even in these times is not to be despaired of. For who knows the will of God concerning this matter? CHAPTER Eight. Next let us ask, if they please, out of so great a crowd of gods which the Romans worship, whom in especial, or what gods they believe to have extended and preserved that empire. Now surely of this work, which is so excellent and so very full of the highest dignity, they dare not ascribe any part to the goddess Cloacina, or to Volupia, who has her appellation from voluptuousness, or to Libentina, who has her name from lust, or to Vaticanus, who presides over the screaming of infants, or to Conina, who rules over their cradles. But how is it possible to recount in one part of this book all the names of gods or goddesses, which they could scarcely comprise in great volumes, distributing among those divinities their peculiar offices about single things? They have not even thought that the charge of their lands should be committed to any one god, but they have entrusted their farms to Rusina, the ridges of the mountains to Eugatinus, over the downs they have set the goddess Colatina, over the valleys Valonia. Nor could they even find one Segetia so competent that they could commend her care all their corn-crops at once, but so long as their seed-corn was still under the ground, they would have the goddess Sea set over it, then, whenever it was above ground and formed straw, they set over it the goddess Segetia, and when the grain was collected and stored, they set over it the goddess Tutelina, that it might be kept safe. Who would not have thought that goddess Segetia sufficient to take care of the standing corn until it had passed from the first green blades to the dry ears? 
yet she was not enough for men who loved a multitude of gods that the miserable soul despising the chaste embrace of the one true god should be prostituted to a crowd of demons therefore they set proserpina over the germinating seeds over the joints and knots of the stems the god nodotus over the sheaths enfolding the ears the goddess volantina when the sheaths opened that the spike might shoot forth it was ascribed to the goddess patalana when the stems stood all equal with new ears, because the ancients described this equalizing by the term hostire, it was ascribed to the goddess Hostilina. When the grain was in flower, it was dedicated to the goddess Flora, when full of milk, to the god Lacturnus, when maturing, to the goddess Matuta, when the crop was runcated, that is, removed from the soil, to the goddess Runcina. Nor do I yet recount them all, for I am sick of all this, though it gives them no shame. Only I have said these very few things, in order that it may be understood they dare by no means say that the Roman Empire has been established, increased, and preserved by their deities, who had all their own functions assigned to them in such a way that no general oversight was entrusted to any one of them. When, therefore, could Sagitia take care of the empire, who was not allowed to take care of the corn and the trees? When could Cunina take thought about war, whose oversight was not allowed to go beyond the cradles of the babies? When could Nidotus give help in battle, who had nothing to do even with the sheath of the ear, but only with the knots of the joints? Every one sets a porter at the door of his house, and because he is a man he is quite sufficient. But these people have set three gods, Forculus to the doors, Cardea to the hinge, Lamentius to the threshold. Thus Forculus could not at the same time take care also of the hinge and the threshold. CHAPTER Nine. Therefore omitting, or passing by for a little, that crowd of petty gods, we ought to inquire into the part performed by the great gods, whereby Rome has been made so great as to reign so long over so many nations. Doubtless, therefore, this is the work of Jove, for they will have it that he is the king of all the gods and goddesses, as is shown by his scepter and by the capital on the lofty hill. Concerning that god they publish a saying which, although that of a poet, is most apt, all things are full of Jove. Varro believes that this god is worshipped, although called by another name, even by those who worship one god alone without any image. But if this is so, why has he been so badly used at Rome, and indeed by other nations too, that an image of him should be made, a thing which was so displeasing to Varro himself, that although he was overborne by the perverse custom of so great a city, he had not the least hesitation in both saying and writing that those who have appointed images for the people have both taken away fear and added error. CHAPTER Ten. Why also is Juno united to him as his wife, who is called at once sister and yoke-fellow? Because, say they, we have Jove in the ether, Juno in the air, and these two elements are united, the one being superior, the other inferior. It is not he, then, of whom it is said, all things are full of Jove, if Juno also fills some part. Does each fill either, and are both of this couple, and both of these elements, and in each of them at the same time? Why, then, is the ether given to Jove, the air to Juno? Besides, these two should have been enough. Why is it that the sea is assigned to Neptune, the earth to Pluto? And that these also might not be left without mates, Salatia is joined to Neptune, Proserpine to Pluto. For they say that as Juno possesses the lower part of the heavens, that is, the air, so Salatia possesses the lower part of the sea, and Proserpine the lower part of the earth. They seek how they may patch up these fables, but they find no way. For if these things were so, their ancient sages would have maintained that there are three chief elements of the world, not four, in order that each of the elements might have a pair of gods. 
Now they have positively affirmed that the ether is one thing, the air another. But water, whether higher or lower, is surely water. Suppose it ever so unlike, can it ever be so much so as no longer to be water? And the lower earth, by whatever divinity it may be distinguished, what else can it be than earth? Lo, then, since the whole physical world is complete in these four or three elements, where shall Minerva be? What should she possess? What should she fill? For she is placed in the capital along with these two, although she is not the offspring of their marriage. Or if they say that she possesses the higher part of the ether, and on that account the poets have feigned that she sprang from the head of Jove, why then is she not rather reckoned the queen of the gods because she is superior to Jove? Is it because it would be improper to set the daughter before the father? Why then is not that rule of justice observed concerning Jove himself towards Saturn? Is it because he was conquered? Have they fought then? By no means, say they, that is an old wife's fable. Lo, we are not to believe fables, and must hold more worthy opinions concerning the gods. Why then do they not assign to the father of Jove a seat, if not of higher, at least of equal honour? Because Saturn, they say, is length of time. Therefore they who worship Saturn worship time, and it is insinuated that Jupiter, the king of the gods, was born of time. For is anything unworthy said when Jupiter and Juno are said to have been sprung from time, if he is the heaven and she is the earth, since both heaven and earth have been made and are therefore not eternal? For their learned and wise men have this also in their books. Nor is that saying taken by Virgil out of poetic figments, but out of the books of philosophers. Then Ether, the father almighty, in copious showers, descended into his spouse's glad bosom, making it fertile, that is, into the bosom of Tellus, or the earth. Although here also they will have it that there are some differences, and think that in the earth herself Terra is one thing, Tellus another, and Tulumo another. And they have all these as gods, called by their own names, distinguished by their own offices, and venerated with their own altars and rites. This same earth also they call the mother of the gods, so that even the fictions of the poets are more tolerable, if, according not to their poetical but sacred books, Juno is not only the sister and wife, but also the mother of Jove. The same earth they worship is Ceres, and also is Vesta, while they yet more frequently affirm that Vesta is nothing else than fire, pertaining to the hearts, without which the city cannot exist and therefore virgins are wont to serve her, because as nothing is born of a virgin, so nothing is born of fire. But all this nonsense ought to be completely abolished and extinguished by him who is born of a virgin. For who can bear that, while they ascribe to the fire so much honour, and, as it were, chastity, they do not blush sometimes even to call Vesta Venus, so that honoured virginity may vanish in her handmaidens? For if Vesta is Venus, how can virgins rightly serve her by abstaining from venery? Are there two Venuses, the one a virgin, the other not a maid? Or, rather, are there three, one the goddess of virgins, who is also called Vesta, another the goddess of wives, and another of harlots? To her also the Phoenicians offered a gift by prostituting their daughters before they united them to husbands. Which of these is the wife of Vulcan? Certainly not the virgin, since she has a husband. Far be it from us to say it is the harlot, lest we should seem to wrong the son of Juno and fellow-worker of Minerva. Therefore it is to be understood that she belongs to the married people, but we would not wish them to imitate her in what she did with Mars. Again, they say, you return to fables. What sort of justice is that, to be angry with us because we say such things of their gods, and not to be angry with themselves, who in their theatres most willingly behold the crimes of their gods? 
and, a thing incredible if it were not thoroughly well proved, these very theatric representations of the crimes of their gods have been instituted in honour of these same gods. CHAPTER Eleven. Let them therefore assert as many things as ever they please in physical reasonings and disputations. One while let Jupiter be the soul of this corporeal world, who fills and moves that whole mass, constructed and compacted out of four, or as many elements as they please. Another while let him yield to his sister and brothers their parts of it. Now let him be the ether, that from above he may embrace Juno, the air spread out beneath. Again, let him be the whole heaven, along with the air, and impregnate with fertilizing showers and seeds the earth, as his wife, and, at the same time, his mother, for this is not vile in divine beings. And yet again, that it may not be necessary to run through them all, let him, the one God, of whom many think it has been said, by a most noble poet, For God pervadeth all things, all lands, and the tracts of the sea, and the depth of the heavens. Let it be he who in the ether is Jupiter, in the air Juno, in the sea Neptune, in the lower parts of the sea Salatia, in the earth Pluto, in the lower part of the earth Proserpine, on the domestic hearths Vesta, in the furnace of the workmen Vulcan, among the stars Sol and Luna and the stars, in divination Apollo, in merchandise Mercury, in Janus the initiator, in Terminus the terminator, Saturn in time, Mars and Bologna in war, Liber in vineyards, Ceres in cornfields, Diana in forests, Minerva in learning. Finally, let it be he who is in that crowd, as it were, of plebeian gods. Let him preside under the name of Liber over the seed of men, and under that of Libera over that of women. Let him be Despiter, who brings forth the birth to the light of day. Let him be the goddess Mena, whom they set over the menstruation of women. Let him be Lucina, who is invoked by women in childbirth. Let him bring help to those who are being born by taking them up from the bosom of the earth, and let him be called Opus. Let him open the mouth in the crying babe, and be called the god Vaticanus. Let him lift it from the earth, and be called the goddess Levana. Let him watch over cradles, and be called the goddess Cunina. Let it be no other than he who is in those goddesses, who sing the fates of the newborn, and are called Carmentes. Let him preside over fortuitous events, and be called Fortuna. In the goddess Rumina let him milk out the breast to the little one, because the ancients termed the breast Ruma. In the goddess Potina let him administer drink. In the goddess Educa let him supply food. From the terror of infants let him be styled Paventia. From the hope which comes, Vanilia. From voluptuousness, Volupia. From action, Agenor. From the stimulants by which man is spurred on to much action, let him be named the goddess Stimula. Let him be the goddess Strenia, for making strenuous. Numeria, who teaches to number, Camena, who teaches to sing. Let him be both the god Consus for granting counsel, and the goddess Sentia for inspiring sentences. Let him be the goddess Juventas, who, after the robe of boyhood is laid aside, takes charge at the beginning of the youthful age. Let him be Fortuna Barbata, who endues adults with a beard, whom they have not chosen to honour. So that this divinity, whatever it may be, should at least be a male god, named either Barbatus from Barba, like Nodotus from Nodus, or certainly not Fortuna, but because he has beards, Fortunius. Let him and the god Hugatinus yoke couples in marriage, and when the girdle of the virgin wife is loosed, let him be invoked as the goddess Virginiensis. Let him be Mutunus or Tuternus, who among the Greeks is called Priapus. 
if they are not ashamed of it, let all these which I have named, and whatever others I have not named, for I have not thought fit to name all, let all these gods and goddesses be that one Jupiter, whether, as some will have it, all these are parts of him, or are his powers, as those think who are pleased to consider him the soul of the world, which is the opinion of most of their doctors, and these the greatest. If these things are so, how evil they may be, I do not yet meanwhile inquire, what would they lose, if they by a more prudent abridgment should worship one god? For what part of him could be contemned, if he himself should be worshipped? But if they are afraid lest parts of him should be angry at being passed by or neglected, then it is not the case, as they will have it, that this whole is as the life of one living being, which contains all the gods together, as if they were its virtues, or members, or parts. But each part has its own life separate from the rest, if it is so that one can be angered, appeased, or stirred up more than another. But if it is said that altogether, that is, the whole Jove himself, would be offended if his parts were not also worshipped singly and minutely, it is foolishly spoken. Surely none of them could be passed by if he who singly possesses them all should be worshipped. For to omit other things which are innumerable, when they say that all the stars are parts of Jove, and are all alive, and have rational souls, and therefore without controversy are gods, can they not see how many they do not worship, to how many they do not build temples, or set up altars, and to how very few, in fact, of the stars they have thought of setting them up and offering sacrifice? If, therefore, those are displeased who are not severally worshipped, do they not fear to live with only a few appeased, while all heaven is displeased? But if they worship all the stars, because they are part of Jove whom they worship, by the same compendious method they could supplicate them all in him alone. For in this way no one would be displeased, since in him alone all would be supplicated. No one would be contemned, instead of there being just cause of displeasure given to the much greater number who were passed by in the worship offered to some, especially when Priapus, stretched out in vile nakedness, is preferred to those who shine from their supernal abode. CHAPTER Twelve. Ought not men of intelligence, and indeed men of every kind, to be stirred up to examine the nature of this opinion? For there is no need of excellent capacity for this task, that putting away the desire of contention they may observe that if God is the soul of the world, and the world is as a body to him who is the soul, he must be one living being consisting of soul and body, and that this same God is a kind of womb of nature containing all things in himself, so that the lives and souls of all living things are taken, according to the manner of each one's birth, out of his soul which vivifies that whole mass, and therefore nothing at all remains which is not a part of God. And if this is so, who cannot see what impious and irreligious consequences follow, such as that whatever one may trample, he must trample a part of God, and in slaying any living creature a part of God must be slaughtered? But I am unwilling to utter all that may occur to those who think of it, yet cannot be spoken without irreverence. CHAPTER Thirteen. But if they contend that only rational animals, such as men, are parts of God, I do not really see how, if the whole world is God, they can separate beasts from being parts of him. But what need is there of striving about that? Concerning the rational animal himself, that is, man, what more unhappy belief can be entertained than that a part of God is whipped when a new boy is whipped? And who, unless he is quite mad, could bear the thought that parts of God can become lascivious, iniquitous, impious, and altogether damnable? In brief, why is God angry at those who do not worship him, since these offenders are parts of himself? It remains, therefore, that they must say that all the gods have their own lives, that each one lives for himself, and none of them is a part of any one, but that all are to be worshipped, at least as many as can be known and worshipped, for there are so many it is impossible that all can be so. 
and of all these i believe that jupiter because he presides as king is thought by them to have both established and extended the roman empire for if he has not done it what other god do they believe could have attempted so great a work when they must all be occupied with their own offices and works nor can one intrude on that of another could the kingdom of men then be propagated and increased by the king of the gods chapter fourteen here first of all i ask why even the kingdom itself is not some god for why should it not also be so if victory is a goddess or what need is there of jove himself in this affair if victory favours and is propitious and always goes to those whom she wishes to be victorious with this goddess favourable and propitious even if jove was idle and did nothing what nations could remain unsubdued what kingdom would not yield but perhaps it is displeasing to good men to fight with most wicked unrighteousness and provoke with voluntary war neighbours who are peaceable and do no wrong in order to enlarge a kingdom if they feel thus i entirely approve and praise them chapter fifteen let them ask then whether it is quite fitting for good men to rejoice in extended empire for the iniquity of those with whom just wars are carried on favours the growth of a kingdom which would certainly have been small if the peace and justice of neighbours had not by any wrong provoked the carrying on of war against them and human affairs being thus more happy all kingdoms would have been small rejoicing in neighbourly concord and thus there would have been very many kingdoms of nations in the world as there are very many houses of citizens in a city therefore to carry on war and extend a kingdom over wholly subdued nations seems to bad men to be felicity to good men necessity but because it would be worse that the injurious should rule over those who are more righteous therefore even that is not unsuitably called felicity but beyond doubt it is greater felicity to have a good neighbour at peace than to conquer a bad one by making war your wishes are bad when you desire that one whom you hate or fear should be in such a condition that you can conquer him if therefore by carrying on wars that were just not impious or unrighteous the romans could have acquired so great an empire ought they not to worship as a goddess even the injustice of foreigners for we see that this has cooperated much in extending the empire by making foreigners so unjust that they became people with whom just wars might be carried on and the empire increased and why may not injustice at least that of foreign nations also be a goddess if fear and dread and ague have deserved to be roman gods by these two therefore that is by foreign injustice and the goddess victoria for injustice stirs up causes of wars and victoria brings these same wars to a happy termination the empire has increased even although jove has been idle for what part could jove have here when those things which might be thought to be his benefits are held to be gods called gods worshipped as gods and are themselves invoked for their own parts he also might have some part here if he himself might be called empire just as she is called victory or if empire is the gift of jove why may not victory also be held to be his gift and it certainly would have been held to be so had he been recognized and worshipped not as a stone in the capital but as the true king of kings and lord of lords chapter sixteen but i wonder very much that while they assign to separate gods single things and well-nigh all movements of the mind that while they invoke the goddess agonoria who should excite to action the goddess stimula who should stimulate to unusual action the goddess mercia 
who should not move men beyond measure, but make them, as Pomponius says, mercid, that is, too slothful and inactive, the goddess strenuo, who should make them strenuous, and that while they offered to all these gods and goddesses solemn and public worship, they should yet have been unwilling to give public acknowledgment to her whom they named Quius, because she makes men quiet, but built her temple outside the Colleen Gate. Whether was this a symptom of an unquiet mind, or rather was it thus intimated, that he who should persevere in worshipping that crowd, not to be sure of gods, but of demons, could not dwell with quiet, to which the true physician calls, saying, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. CHAPTER seventeen. Or do they say, perhaps, that Jupiter sends the goddess Victoria, and that she, as it were, acting in obedience to the king of the gods, comes to those to whom he may have dispatched her, and takes up her quarters on their side? This is truly said not of Jove, whom they, according to their own imagination, feigned to be the king of the gods, but of him who is the true eternal king, because he sends not victory, who is no person, but his angel, and causes whom he pleases to conquer, whose counsel may be hidden, but cannot be unjust. For if victory is a goddess, why is not triumph also a god, and joined to victory either as husband, or brother, or son? Indeed, they have imagined such things concerning the gods, that if the poets had feigned the like, and they should have been discussed by us, they would have replied that they were laughable figments of the poets, not to be attributed to true deities. And yet they themselves did not laugh when they were, not reading in the poets, but worshipping in the temples, such doting follies. Therefore they should entreat Jove alone for all things, and supplicate him only. For if victory is a goddess, and is under him as her king, wherever he might have sent her, she could not dare to resist and do her own will rather than his. CHAPTER eighteen. What shall we say besides of the idea that Felicity also is a goddess? She has received a temple, she has merited an altar, suitable rites of worship are paid to her. She alone then should be worshipped for where she is present, what good thing can be absent? But what does a man wish, that he thinks fortune also a goddess, and worships her? Is felicity one thing, fortune another? Fortune indeed may be bad as well as good, but felicity, if it could be bad, would not be felicity. Certainly we ought to think all the gods of either sex, if they also have sex, are only good. This says Plato, this say other philosophers, this say all estimable rulers of the republic and the nations. How is it, then, that the goddess Fortune is sometimes good, sometimes bad? Is it perhaps the case that when she is bad she is not a goddess, but is suddenly changed into a malignant demon? How many fortunes are there, then? Just as many as there are men who are fortunate, that is, of good fortune. But since there must also be very many others who at the very same time are men of bad fortune, could she, being one and the same fortune, be at the same time both good and bad, the one to these, the other to those? She who is the goddess, is she always good? Then she herself is felicity. Why then are two names given her? Yet this is tolerable, for it is customary that one thing should be called by two names. But why different temples, different altars, different rituals? There is a reason, say they, because felicity is she whom the good have by previous merit. But fortune, which is termed good without any trial of merit, befalls both good and bad men fortuitously, whence also she is named fortune. How, therefore, is she good, who without any discernment comes both to the good and to the bad? Why is she worshipped, who is thus blind, running at random on any one whatever, so that for the most part she passes by her worshippers and cleaves to those who despise her? Or if her worshippers profit somewhat, so that they are seen by her and loved, 
then she follows merit and does not come fortuitously what then becomes of that definition of fortune what becomes of the opinion that she has received her very name from fortuitous events for it profits one nothing to worship her if she is truly fortune but if she distinguishes her worshippers so that she may benefit them she is not fortune or does jupiter send her too whether he pleases then let him alone be worshipped because fortune is not able to resist him when he commands her and sends her where he pleases or at least let the bad worship her who do not choose to have merit by which the goddess felicity might be invited end of book 4 chapters 1 through 18 recording by darren l slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org book 4 chapters 19 through 34 of the city of god this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 4, Chapter 19. To this supposed deity, whom they call Fortuna, they ascribe so much, indeed, that they have a tradition that the image of her, which was dedicated by the Roman matrons, and called Fortuna Muliebris, has spoken, and has said once and again that the matrons pleased her by their homage, which, indeed, if it is true, ought not to excite our wonder. For it is not so difficult for malignant demons to deceive, and they ought the rather to advert to their wits and wiles, because it is that goddess who comes by haphazard who has spoken, and not she who comes to reward merit. For Fortuna was loquacious, and Felicitas mute. And for what other reason, but that men might not care to live rightly, having made Fortuna their friend, who could make them fortunate without any good desert? And truly, if Fortuna speaks, she should at least speak, not with a womanly, but with a manly voice, lest they themselves who have dedicated the image should think so great a miracle has been wrought by feminine loquacity. CHAPTER Twenty. They have made virtue also a goddess, which indeed, if it could be a goddess, had been preferable to many. And now, because it is not a goddess, but a gift of God, let it be obtained by prayer from him, from, by whom alone it can be given, and the whole crowd of false gods vanishes. But why is faith believed to be a goddess, and why does she herself receive temple and altar? For whoever prudently acknowledges her makes his own itself an abode for her. But how do they know what faith is, of which it is the prime and greatest function, that the true God may be believed in? But why had not virtue sufficed? Does it not include faith also? Forasmuch as they have thought proper to distribute virtue into four divisions, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and as each of these divisions has its own virtues, faith is among the parts of justice, and has the chief place with as many of us as know what that saying means, the just shall live by faith. But if faith is a goddess, I wonder why these keen lovers of a multitude of gods have wronged so many other goddesses by passing them by, when they could have dedicated temples and altars to them likewise. Why has temperance not deserved to be a goddess, when some Roman princes have obtained no small glory on account of her? Why, in fine, is fortitude not a goddess, who aided Mucius when he thrust his right hand into the flames, who aided Curtius when, for the sake of his country, he threw himself headlong into the yawning earth, who aided Decius the sire and Decius the son when they devoted themselves for the army? 
though we might question what of these men had true fortitude, if this concerned our present discussion. Why have prudence and wisdom merited no place among the gods? Is it because they are all worshipped under the general name of virtue itself? Then they could thus worship the true god also, of whom all the other gods are thought to be parts. But in that one name of virtue is comprehended both faith and chastity, which yet have obtained separate altars in temples of their own. CHAPTER Twenty One. These, not verity, but vanity, has made goddesses, for these are gifts of the true God, not themselves goddesses. However, where virtue and felicity are, what else is sought for? What can suffice the man whom virtue and felicity do not suffice? For surely virtue comprehends all things we need do, felicity all things we need wish for. If Jupiter, then, was worshipped in order that he might give these two things, because, if extent and duration of empire is something good, it pertains to this same felicity, why is it not understood that they are not goddesses, but the gifts of God? But if they are judged to be goddesses, then at least that other great crowd of gods should not be sought after. For having considered all the offices which their fancy is distributed among the various gods and goddesses, let them find out, if they can, anything which could be bestowed by any god whatever on a man possessing virtue, possessing felicity. What instruction could be sought either from Mercury or Minerva, when virtue already possessed all in herself? Virtue, indeed, is defined by the ancients as itself the art of living well and rightly. Hence, because virtue is called in Greek arete, it has been thought the Latins have derived it from the term art. But if virtue cannot come except to the clever, what need was there of the god Father Cassius, who should make men cautious, that is, acute, when felicity could confer this? Because to be born clever belongs to felicity. Whence, although goddess Felicity could not be worshipped by one not yet born, in order that, being made his friend, she might bestow this on him, yet she might confer this favour on parents who were her worshippers, that clever children should be born to them. What need had women in childbirth to invoke Lucina, when, if Felicity should be present, they would have not only a good delivery, but good children also? What need was there to commend the children to the goddess Ops, when they were being born, to the god Vaticanus and their birth-cry, to the goddess Cunina, when lying cradled, to the goddess Romina, when sucking, to the goddess Datilinius, when standing, to the goddess Adiona, when coming, to Abiona, when going away, to the goddess Mens, that they might have a good mind, to the god Volumnus, and the goddess Volumna, that they might wish for good things, to the nuptial gods, that they might make good matches, to the rural gods, and chiefly to the goddess Fructesca herself, that they might receive the most abundant fruits, to Mars and Bellona, that they might carry on war well, to the goddess Victoria, that they might be victorious, to the god Honor, that they might be honoured, to the goddess Pecunia, that they might have plenty money, to the god Escalanus, and his son Argentinus, that they might have brass and silver coin. For they set down Escalanus as the father of Argentinus for this reason, that brass coin began to be used before silver. But I wonder Argentinus has not begotten Aurinus, since gold coin also has followed. Could they have him for a god, they would prefer Arenas both to his father Argentinus and his grandfather Escalanus, just as they set Jove before Saturn. 
Therefore what necessity was there on account of these gifts, either of soul, or body, or outward estate, to worship and invoke so great a crowd of gods, all of whom I have not mentioned, nor have they themselves been able to provide for all human benefits, minutely and singly methodized, minute and single gods, when the one goddess Felicity was able, with the greatest ease, compendiously to bestow the whole of them? Nor should any other be sought after, either for the bestowing of good things, or for the averting of evil. For why should they invoke the goddess Fasonia for the weary, for driving away enemies, the goddess Polonia, for the sick as a physician, either Apollo or Aesculapius, or both together, if there should be great danger? Neither should the god Spiniensis be entreated that he might root out the thorns from the fields, nor the goddess Rubigo that the mildew might not come. Felicitas alone being present and guarding, either no evils would have arisen, or they would have been quite easily driven away. Finally, since we treat of these two goddesses, virtue and felicity, if felicity is the reward of virtue, she is not a goddess, but a gift of God. But if she is a goddess, why may she not be said to confer virtue itself, inasmuch as it is a great felicity to attain virtue? CHAPTER Twenty Two. What is it, then, that Varro boasts he has bestowed as a very great benefit on his fellow-citizens, because he not only recounts the gods who ought to be worshipped by the Romans, but also tells what pertains to each of them? Just as it is of no advantage, he says, to know the name and appearance of any man who is a physician, and not know that he is a physician, so, he says, it is of no advantage to know well that Aesculapius is a god, if you are not aware that he can bestow the gift of health, and consequently do not know why you ought to supplicate him. He also affirms this by another comparison, saying, No one is able not only to live well, but even to live at all, if he does not know who is a smith, who a baker, who a weaver, from whom he can seek any utensil, whom he may take for a helper, whom for a leader, whom for a teacher, asserting, that in this way it can be doubtful to no one that thus the knowledge of the gods is useful, if one can know what force and faculty or power any god may have in any thing. For from this we may be able, he says, to know what god we ought to call to and invoke for any cause, lest we should do as too many are wont to do, and desire water from Liber and wine from lymphs. Very useful, forsooth. Who would not give this man thanks if he could show true things, and if he could teach that the one true God, from whom all good things are, is to be worshipped by men? Chapter 23 But how does it happen, if their books and rituals are true, and Felicity is a goddess, that she herself is not appointed as the only one to be worshipped, since she could confer all things, and all at once make men happy? For who wishes anything for any other reason than that he may become happy? Why was it left to Lucullus to dedicate a temple to so great a goddess, at so late a date, and after so many Roman rulers? Why did Romulus himself, ambitious as he was of founding a fortunate city, not erect a temple to this goddess before all others? Why did he supplicate the other gods for anything, since he would have lacked nothing had she been with him? For even he himself would neither have been first a king, then afterwards, as they think, a god, if this goddess had not been propitious to him. Why, therefore, did he appoint his gods for the Romans, Janus, Jove, Mars, Picus, Faunus, Tiburnus, Hercules, and others, if there were more of them? Why did Titus Tatius add Saturn, Ops, Sun, Moon, Vulcan, Light, and whatever others he added, among whom was even the goddess Cloacina, while Felicity was neglected? Why did Numa appoint so many gods and so many goddesses without this one? Was it perhaps because he could not see her among so great a crowd? 
Certainly King Hostilius would not have introduced the new god's fear and dread to be propitiated, if he could have known or might have worshipped this goddess. For in presence of felicity fear and dread would have disappeared, I do not say propitiated, but put to flight. Next, I ask, how is it that the Roman Empire had already immensely increased before any one worshipped felicity? Was the empire therefore more great than happy? For how could true felicity be there where there was not true piety? For piety is the genuine worship of the true God, and not the worship of as many demons as there are false gods. Yet even afterwards, when felicity had already been taken into the number of the gods, the great infelicity of the civil wars ensued. Was Felicity perhaps justly indignant, both because she was invited so late, and was not invited to honour, but rather to reproach, because along with her were worshipped Priapus, and Cloacina, and Fear, and Dread, and Ague, and others which were not gods to be worshipped, but the crimes of the worshippers? Last of all, if it seemed good to worship so great a goddess along with a most unworthy crowd, why at least was she not worshipped in a more honourable way than the rest? For is it not intolerable that Felicity is placed neither among the gods consentes, whom they allege to be admitted into the council of Jupiter, nor among the gods whom they term select? Some temple might be made for her which might be preeminent both in loftiness of sight and dignity of style. Why, indeed, not something better than is made for Jupiter himself? For who gave the kingdom even to Jupiter but Felicity? I am supposing that when he reigned he was happy. Felicity, however, is certainly more valuable than a kingdom. For no one doubts that a man might easily be found who may fear to be made a king, but no one is found who is unwilling to be happy. Therefore, if it is thought they can be consulted by augury, or in any other way, the gods themselves should be consulted about this thing, whether they may wish to give place to felicity. If perchance the place should already be occupied by the temples and altars of others, where a greater and more lofty temple might be built to felicity, even Jupiter himself might give way, so that felicity might rather obtain the very pinnacle of the Capitoline hill. For there is not any one who would resist felicity, except, which is impossible, one who might wish to be unhappy. Certainly, if he should be consulted, Jupiter would in no case do what those three gods, Mars, Terminus, and Juventas, did, who positively refused to give place to their superior and king. For as their books record, when King Tarquin wished to construct the capital, and perceived that the place which seemed to him to be the most worthy and suitable was preoccupied by other gods, not daring to do anything contrary to their pleasure, and believing that they would willingly give place to a god who was so great, and was their own master, because there were many of them there when the capital was founded, he inquired by augury whether they chose to give place to Jupiter, and they were all willing to remove thence, except those whom I have named, Mars, Terminus, and Juventus, and therefore the capital was built in such a way that these three also might be within it, yet with such obscure signs that even the most learned men could scarcely know this. Surely, then, Jupiter himself would by no means despise Felicity, as he was himself despised by Terminus, Mars, and Juventus. But even they themselves, who had not given place to Jupiter, would certainly give place to Felicity, who had made Jupiter king over them. Or if they should not give place, they would act thus not out of contempt of her, but because they chose rather to be obscure in the house of Felicity than to be eminent without her in their own places. Thus the goddess Felicity being established in the largest and loftiest place, the citizen should learn whence the furtherance of every good desire should be sought. And so, by the persuasion of nature herself, the superfluous multitude of other gods being abandoned, felicity alone would be worshipped, prayer would be made to her alone, her temple alone would be frequented by the citizens who wished to be happy, which no one of them would not wish, and thus felicity, who was sought for, for from all the gods, would be sought for only from her own self.' 
For who wishes to receive from any god anything else than felicity, or what he supposes to tend to felicity? Wherefore, if felicity has it in her power to be with what man she pleases, and she has it, if she is a goddess, what folly is it, after all, to seek from any other god her whom you can obtain by request from her own self? Therefore they ought to honour this goddess above other gods, even by dignity of place. For as we read in their own authors, the ancient Romans paid greater honours to I know not what Simanus, to whom they attributed nocturnal thunderbolts, than to Jupiter, to whom diurnal thunderbolts were held to pertain. But after a famous and conspicuous temple had been built to Jupiter, owing to the dignity of the building, the multitude resorted to him in so great numbers, that scarce one can be found who remembers even to have read the name of Simanus, which now he cannot hear once named. But if Felicity is not a goddess, because, as it is true, it is a gift of God, that God must be sought who has power to give it, and that hurtful multitude of false gods must be abandoned, which the vain multitude of foolish men follows after, making gods to itself of the gifts of God, and offending himself whose gifts they are by the stubbornness of a proud will. For he cannot be free from infelicity who worships felicity as a goddess, and forsakes God the giver of felicity, just as he cannot be free from hunger who licks a painted loaf of bread, and does not buy it of the man who has a real one. CHAPTER Twenty Four. We may, however, consider their reasons. Is it to be believed, say they, that our forefathers were besotted even to such a degree as not to know that these things are divine gifts, and not God's? but as they knew that such things are granted to no one except by some god freely bestowing them they called the gods whose names they did not find out by the names of those things which they deemed to be given by them sometimes slightly altering the name for that purpose as for example from war they have named bellona not bellum from cradles cunina not cune from standing corn segesia not seges from apples pomona not pomum from oxen bubona not boss Sometimes, again, with no alteration of the word, just as the things themselves are named, so that the goddess who gives money is called pecunia, and money is not thought to be itself a goddess, so of virtus who gives virtue, honor who gives honor, concordia who gives concord, victoria who gives victory. So, they say, when felicitas is called a goddess, what is meant is not the thing itself which is given, but that deity by whom felicity is given. Chapter 25 Having had that reason rendered to us, we shall perhaps much more easily persuade, as we wish, those whose heart has not become too much hardened. For if now human infirmity is perceived that felicity cannot be given except by some god, if this was perceived by those who worship so many gods, at whose head they set Jupiter himself, if in their ignorance of the name of him by whom felicity was given, they agreed to call him by the name of that very thing which they believed he gave, then it follows that they thought that felicity could not be given even by Jupiter himself, whom they already worshipped, but certainly by him whom they thought fit to worship under the name of felicity itself. I thoroughly affirm the statement that they believed felicity to be given by a certain god whom they knew not. Let him therefore be sought after, let him be worshipped, and it is enough." Let the train of innumerable demons be repudiated, and let this God suffice every man whom his gift suffices. For him, I say, God, the giver of felicity, will not be enough to worship, for whom felicity itself is not enough to receive. But let him for whom it suffices, and man has nothing more he ought to wish for, serve the one God, the giver of felicity. 
This God is not he whom they call Jupiter, for if they acknowledged him to be the giver of felicity, they would not seek under the name of felicity itself for another god or goddess by whom felicity might be given, nor could they tolerate that Jupiter himself should be worshipped with such infamous attributes, for he is said to be the debaucher of the wives of others. He is the shameless lover and ravisher of a beautiful boy. Chapter 26 but, says Cicero, Homer invented these things, and transferred things human to the gods. I would rather transfer things divine to us. The poet, by ascribing such crimes to the gods, has justly displeased the grave man. Why, then, are the scenic plays where those crimes are habitually spoken of, acted, exhibited, in honor of the gods, reckoned among things divine by the most learned men? Cicero should exclaim, not against the inventions of the poets, but against the customs of the ancients. Would not they have exclaimed in reply, What have we done? The gods themselves have loudly demanded that these plays should be exhibited in their honor, have fiercely exacted them, have menaced destruction unless this was performed, have avenged its neglect with great severity, and have manifested pleasure at the reparation of such neglect. Among their virtuous and wonderful deeds the following is related. It was announced in a dream to Titus Latinius, a Roman rustic, that he should go to the Senate and tell them to recommence the games of Rome, because on the first day of their celebration a condemned criminal had been led to punishment in the sight of the people, an incident so sad as to disturb the gods who were seeking amusement from the games. And when the peasant who had received this intimation was afraid on the following day to deliver it to the Senate, it was renewed next night in a severer form. He lost his son because of his neglect. On the third night he was warned that yet a graver punishment was impending, if he should still refuse obedience. When even thus he did not dare to obey, he fell into a virulent and horrible disease. But then, on the advice of his friends, he gave information to the magistrates, and was carried in a litter into the Senate, and having, on declaring his dream, immediately recovered strength, went away on his own feet whole. The Senate, amazed at so great a miracle, decreed that the game should be renewed at fourfold cost. What sensible man does not see that men, being put upon by malignant demons, from whose domination nothing save the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord sets free, have been compelled by force to exhibit to such gods as these plays which, if well advised, they should condemn as shameful? Certain it is that in these plays the poetic crimes of the gods are celebrated, yet they are plays which were re-established by decree of the Senate under compulsion of the gods. In these plays the most shameless actors celebrated Jupiter as the corrupter of chastity, and thus gave him pleasure. If that was a fiction, he would have been moved to anger, but if he was delighted with the representation of his crimes, even although fabulous, then when he happened to be worshipped, who but the devil could be served? Is it so that he could found, extend, and preserve the Roman Empire, who was more vile than any Roman man whatever, to whom such things were displeasing? Could he give Felicity, who was so infelicitously worshipped, and who, unless he should be thus worshipped, was yet more infelicitously provoked to anger? Chapter 27 It is recorded that the very learned pontiff, Scyvola, had distinguished about three kinds of gods, one introduced by the poets, another by the philosophers, another by the statesmen. The first kind he declares to be trifling, because many unworthy things have been invented by the poets concerning the gods. The second does not suit states, because it contains some things that are superfluous, and some too which would be prejudicial for the people to know. It is no great matter about the superfluous things, for it is a common saying of skilful lawyers, superfluous things do no harm. But what are those things which do harm when brought before the multitude? 
These, he says, that Hercules, Aesculapius, Castor, and Pollux are not gods, for it is declared by learned men that these were but men, and yielded to the common lot of mortals. What else? That states have not the true images of the gods, because the true god has neither sex, nor age, nor definite corporeal members. The pontiff is not willing that the people should know these things, for he does not think they are false. He thinks it expedient, therefore, that states should be deceived in matters of religion, which Varro himself does not even hesitate to say in his books about things divine. Excellent religion, to which the weak, who requires to be delivered, may flee for succor, and when he seeks for the truth by which he may be delivered, it is believed to be expedient for him that he be deceived. And truly, in these same books, Scyvola is not silent as to his reason for rejecting the poetic sort of gods, to wit, because they so disfigure the gods that they could not bear comparison even with good men, when they make one to commit theft, another adultery, or again to say or do something else basely and foolishly, as the three goddesses contested with each other the prize of beauty, and the two vanquished by Venus destroyed Troy, that Jupiter turned himself into a bull or swan that he might copulate with some one, that a goddess married a man, and Saturn devoured his children, that, in fine, there is nothing that could be imagined, either of the miraculous or vicious, which may not be found there, and yet is far removed from the nature of the gods. O chief pontiff Scyvola, take away the plays if thou art able. Instruct the people that they may not offer such honours to the immortal gods, in which, if they like, they may admire the crimes of the gods, and so far as it is possible, may, if they please, imitate them. But if the people shall have answered thee, You, O pontiff, have brought these things in among us, then ask the gods themselves, at whose instigation you have ordered these things, that they may not order such things to be offered to them. For if they are bad, and therefore in no way to be believed concerning the majority of the gods, the greater is the wrong done the gods about whom they are feigned with impunity. But they do not hear thee, they are demons, they teach wicked things, they rejoice in vile things. Not only do they not count it a wrong if these things are feigned about them, but it is a wrong they are quite unable to bear if they are not acted at their stated festivals. But now, if thou wouldst call on Jupiter against them, chiefly for that reason that more of his crimes are wont to be acted in the scenic plays, is it not the case that although you call him God Jupiter, by whom this world is ruled and administered, it is he to whom the greatest wrong is done by you, because you have thought he ought to be worshipped along with them, and have styled him their king? CHAPTER Twenty Eight. Therefore such gods who are propitiated by such honours, or rather are impeached by them, for it is a greater crime to delight in having such things said of them falsely, than even if they could be said truly, could never by any means have been able to increase and preserve the Roman Empire. For if they could have done it, they would rather have bestowed so grand a gift on the Greeks, who, in this kind of divine things, that is, in scenic plays, have worshipped them more honourably and worthily, although they have not exempted themselves from those slanders of the poets, by whom they saw the gods torn in pieces, giving them license to ill-use any man they pleased, and have not deemed the scenic players themselves to be base, but have held them worthy even of distinguished honour. But just as the Romans were able to have gold money, although they did not worship a god Orinus, so also they could have silver and brass coin, and yet worship neither Argentinus nor his father Escalanus, and so of all the rest, which it would be irksome for me to detail. It follows, therefore, both that they could not by any means attain such dominion if the true God was unwilling, and that if these gods, false and many, were unknown or contemned, and he alone was known and worshipped with sincere faith and virtue, they would both have a better kingdom here, whatever might be its extent, and whether they might have one here or not, would afterwards receive an eternal kingdom. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. 
For what kind of augury is that which they have declared to be most beautiful, and to which I referred a little ago, that Mars and Terminus and Juventus would not give place even to Jove the king of the gods? For thus, they say, it was signified that the nation dedicated to Mars, that is, the Roman, should yield to none the place it once occupied. Likewise, that on account of the god Terminus, no one would be able to disturb the Roman frontiers, and also that the Roman youth, because of the goddess Juventus, should yield to no one. Let them see, therefore, how they can hold him to be the king of their gods, and the giver of their own kingdom, if these auguries set him down for an adversary, to whom it would have been honourable not to yield. However, if these things are true, they need not be at all afraid. For they are not going to confess that the gods who would not yield to Jove have yielded to Christ. For without altering the boundaries of the empire, Jesus Christ has proved himself able to drive them not only from their temples, but from the hearts of their worshippers. But before Christ came in the flesh, and indeed before these things which we have quoted from their books could have been written, but yet after that auspice was made under King Tarquin, the Roman army has been diverse times scattered or put to flight, and has shown the falseness of the auspice, which they derived from the fact that the goddess Juventus had not given place to Jove, and the nation dedicated to Mars was trodden down in the city itself by the invading and triumphant Gauls, and the boundaries of the empire— through the falling away of many cities to Hannibal, had been hemmed into a narrow space. Thus the beauty of the auspices is made void, and there has remained only the contumacy against Jove, not of gods, but of demons. For it is one thing not to have yielded, and another to have returned whither you have yielded. Besides, even afterwards, in the Oriental regions, the boundaries of the Roman Empire were changed by the will of Hadrian, for he yielded up to the Persian Empire those three noble provinces, Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria, Thus that god Terminus, who according to these books was the guardian of the Roman frontiers, and by that most beautiful auspice had not given place to Jove, would seem to have been more afraid of Hadrian, a king of men, than of the king of the gods. The aforesaid provinces having also been taken back again, almost within our own recollection, the frontier fell back, when Julian, given up to the oracles of their gods, with immoderate daring ordered the victualling ships to be set on fire. The army being thus left destitute of provisions, and he himself also being presently killed by the enemy, and the legions being hard-pressed, while dismayed by the loss of their commander, they were reduced to such extremities that no one could have escaped, unless by articles of peace the boundaries of the empire had then been established where they still remain. Not indeed with so great a loss as was suffered by the concession of Hadrian, but still at a considerable sacrifice." It was a vain augury, then, that the god Terminus did not yield to Jove, since he yielded to the will of Hadrian, and yielded also to the rashness of Julian, and the necessity of Jovinian. The more intelligent and brave Romans have seen these things, but have had little power against the custom of the state, which was bound to observe the rights of the demons, because even they themselves, although they perceived that these things were vain, yet thought that the religious worship which is due to God should be paid to the nature of things which is established under the rule and government of the one true God, serving, as saith the Apostle, the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed for evermore. The help of this true God was necessary to send holy and truly pious men, who would die for the true religion, that they might remove the false from among the living. CHAPTER thirty. Cicero the augur laughs at auguries, and reproves men for regulating the purposes of life by the cries of crows and jackdaws. But it will be said that an academic philosopher who argues that all things are uncertain is unworthy to have any authority in these matters. 
In the second book of his De Naturo Deorum, he introduces Lucilius Balbus, who, after showing that superstitions have their origin in physical and philosophical truths, expresses his indignation at the setting up of images and fabulous notions, speaking thus. Do you not therefore see that from true and useful physical discoveries the reason may be drawn away to fabulous and imaginary gods? This gives birth to false opinions and turbulent errors and superstitions well-nigh old-wifish. For both the forms of the gods and their ages and clothing and ornaments are made familiar to us. Their genealogies, too, their marriages, kinships, and all things about them are debased to the likeness of human weakness. They are even introduced as having perturbed minds, for we have accounts of the lusts, cares, and angers of the gods. Nor, indeed, as the fables go, have the gods been without their wars and battles. And that not only when, as in Homer, some gods on either side have defended two opposing armies, but they have even carried on wars on their own account, as with the Titans or with the Giants. Such things that it is quite absurd either to say or to believe, they are utterly frivolous and groundless. Behold now what is confessed by those who defend the gods of the nations. Afterwards he goes on to say that some things belong to superstition, but others to religion, which he thinks good to teach according to the Stoics. For not only the philosophers, he says, but also our forefathers, have made a distinction between superstition and religion. For those, he says, who spent whole days in prayer, and offered sacrifice, that their children might outlive them, are called superstitious. Who does not see that he is trying, while he fears the public prejudice, to praise the religion of the ancients, and that he wishes to disjoin it from superstition, but cannot find out how to do so? For if those who prayed and sacrificed all day were called superstitious by the ancients, were those also called so, who instituted, what he blames, the images of the gods of diverse age and distinct clothing, and invented the genealogies of gods, their marriages, and kinships? When, therefore, these things are found fault with as superstitious, he implicates in that fault the ancients who instituted and worshipped such images. Nay, he implicates himself, who, with whatever eloquence he may strive to extricate himself and be free, was yet under the necessity of venerating these images. Nor dared he so much as whisper in a discourse to the people what in this disputation he plainly sounds forth. Let us Christians therefore give thanks to the Lord our God, not to heaven and earth, as that author argues, but to him who has made heaven and earth, because these superstitions, which that Balbus, like a babbler, scarcely reprehends, he, by most deep lowliness of Christ, by the preaching of the apostles, by the faith of the martyrs dying for the truth and living with the truth, has overthrown not only in the hearts of the religious, but even in the temples of the superstitious, by their own free service. CHAPTER Thirty One. What says Varro himself, whom we grieve to have found, although not by his own judgment, placing the scenic plays among things divine? When in many passages he is exhorting like a religious man to the worship of the gods, does he not in doing so admit that he does not in his own judgment believe those things which he relates that the Roman state has instituted, so that he does not hesitate to affirm that if he were founding a new state, he could enumerate the gods and their names better by the rule of nature? But being born into a nation already ancient, he says that he finds himself bound to accept the traditional names and surnames of the gods, and the histories connected with them, and that his purpose in investigating and publishing these details is to incline the people to worship the gods, and not to despise them. By which words this most acute man sufficiently indicates that he does not publish all things, because they would not only have been contemptible to himself, but would have seemed despicable even to the rabble, unless they had been passed over in silence. 
I should be thought to conjecture these things unless he himself, in another passage, had openly said, in speaking of religious rites, that many things are true which it is not only not useful for the common people to know, but that it is expedient that the people should think otherwise, even though falsely, and therefore the Greeks have shut up the religious ceremonies and mysteries in silence and within walls. In this he no doubt expresses the policy of the so-called wise men by whom states and peoples are ruled. Yet by this crafty device the malign demons are wonderfully delighted, who possess alike the deceivers and the deceived, and from whose tyranny nothing sets free save the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same most acute and learned author also says that those alone seem to him to have perceived what God is, who have believed him to be the soul of the world, governing it by design and reason. And by this it appears that although he did not attain to the truth, for the true God is not a soul, but the maker and author of the soul, yet if he could have been free to go against the prejudices of custom, he could have confessed and counseled others that the one God ought to be worshipped, who governs the world by design and reason, so that on this subject only this point would remain to be debated with him, that he had called him a soul, and not rather the creator of the soul. He says also that the ancient Romans, for more than a hundred and seventy years, worshipped the gods without an image. And if this custom, he says, could have remained till now, the gods would have been more purely worshipped. In favor of this opinion, he cites as a witness, among others, the Jewish nation. Nor does he hesitate to conclude that passage by saying, of those who first consecrated images for the people, that they have both taken away religious fear from their fellow citizens, and increased error, wisely thinking that the gods easily fall into contempt when exhibited under the stolidity of images. But as he does not say they have transmitted error, but that they have increased it, he therefore wishes it to be understood that there was error already when there were no images. Wherefore, when he says, They alone have perceived what God is, who have believed him to be the governing soul of the world, and thinks that the rites of religion would have been more purely observed without images, who fails to see how near he has come to the truth? For if he had been able to do anything against so inveterate an error, he would certainly have given it as his opinion, both that the one God should be worshipped, and that he should be worshipped without an image. And having so nearly discovered the truth, perhaps he might easily have been put in mind of the mutability of the soul, and might thus have perceived that the true God is that immutable nature which made the soul itself. Since these things are so, whatever ridicule such men have poured in their writings against the plurality of the gods, they have done so rather as compelled by the secret will of God to confess them, than as trying to persuade others. If, therefore, any testimonies are adduced by us from these writings, they are adduced for the confutation of those who are unwilling to consider from how great and malignant the power of the demons, the singular sacrifice of the shedding of the most holy blood, and the gift of the imparted spirit, can set us free. Chapter 32. Varro says also, concerning the generations of the gods, that the people have inclined to the poets rather than to the natural philosophers, and that therefore their forefathers, that is, the ancient Romans, believed both in the sects and the generations of the gods, and settled their marriages, which certainly seems to have been done for no other cause except that it was the business of such men as were prudent and wise to deceive the people in matters of religion, and in that very thing not only to worship but also to imitate the demons, whose greatest lust is to deceive. For just as the demons cannot possess any but those whom they have deceived with guile, so also men in princely office, not indeed being just, but like demons, have persuaded the people in the name of religion to receive as true those things which they themselves knew to be false, in this way, as it were, binding them up more firmly in civil society, so that they might in like manner possess them as subjects. 
but who that was weak and unlearned could escape the deceits of both the princes of the state and the demons? Chapter 33 Therefore that God, the author and giver of felicity, because he alone is the true God, himself gives earthly kingdoms both the good and bad. Neither does he do this rashly, and as it were fortuitously, because he is God, not fortune, but according to the order of things and times which is hidden from us, but thoroughly known to himself, which same order of times, however, he does not serve as subject to it, but himself rules as lord and appoints as governor. Felicity he gives only to the good. Whether a man be a subject or a king makes no difference, he may equally either possess it or not possess it. And it shall be full in that life where kings and subjects exist no longer. And therefore earthly kingdoms are given by him both to the good and to the bad, lest his worshippers, still under the conduct of a very weak mind, should covet these gifts from him as some great things. And this is the mystery of the Old Testament in which the new was hidden, that there even earthly gifts are promised. Those who were spiritual, understanding even then, although not yet openly declaring, both the eternity which was symbolized by these earthly things, and in what gifts of God true felicity could be found. CHAPTER Thirty Four. Therefore, that it might be known that these earthly good things, after which those pant who cannot imagine better things, remain in the power of the one God himself, not of the many false gods whom the Romans have formerly believed worthy of worship, he multiplied his people in Egypt from being very few, and delivered them out of it by wonderful signs. Nor did their women invoke Lucina when their offspring was being incredibly multiplied, and that nation having increased incredibly, he himself delivered, he himself saved them from the hands of the Egyptians who persecuted them, and wished to kill all their infants. Without the goddess Romina they sucked, without Cunina they were cradled, without Educa and Potina they took food and drink, without all those puerile gods they were educated, without the nuptial gods they were married, without the worship of Priapus they had conjugal intercourse, without invocation of Neptune the divided sea opened up a way for them to pass over, and overwhelmed with its returning waves their enemies who pursued them. Neither did they consecrate any goddess Mania when they received manna from heaven, nor when the smitten rock poured forth water to them when they thirsted, did they worship nymphs and lymphs. Without the mad rites of Mars and Bologna they carried on war, and while indeed they did not conquer without victory, yet they did not hold it to be a goddess, but the gift of their god. Without Segesia they had harvests, without Bubona, oxen, honey without Melona, apples without Pomona, and, in a word, everything for which the Romans thought they must supplicate so great a crowd of false gods, they received much more happily from the one true God. And if they had not sinned against him with impious curiosity, which seduced them like magic arts, and drew them to strange gods and idols, and at last led them to kill Christ, their kingdom would have remained to them, and would have been, if not more spacious, yet more happy than that of Rome. And now that they are dispersed through almost all lands and nations, it is through the providence of that one true God, that whereas the images, altars, groves, and temples of the false gods are everywhere overthrown, and their sacrifices prohibited, it may be shown from their books how this has been foretold by their prophets so long before, lest, perhaps, when they should be read in ours, they might seem to be invented by us. But now, reserving what is to follow for the following book, we must here set a bound to the prolixity of this one. End of Book Four, Chapters Nineteen through Thirty Four. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org. 
Book Five, Preface, and Chapters One through Twelve of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Five, Preface. Since then it is established that the complete attainment of all we desire is that which constitutes felicity, which is no goddess, but a gift of God, and that therefore men can worship no god save him who is able to make them happy, and were felicity herself a goddess, she would with reason be the only object of worship. Since, I say, this is established, let us now go on to consider why God, who is able to give with all other things those good gifts which can be possessed by men who are not good, and consequently not happy, has seen fit to grant such extended and long-continued dominion to the Roman Empire. For that this was not effected by that multitude of false gods which they worshipped, we have both already adduced, and shall, as occasion offers, yet adduce considerable proof. CHAPTER One. The cause, then, of the greatness of the Roman Empire is neither fortuitous nor fatal, according to the judgment or opinion of those who call those things fortuitous, which either have no causes, or such causes as do not proceed from some intelligible order, and those things fatal which happen independently of the will of God and man, by the necessity of a certain order. In a word, human kingdoms are established by divine providence. And if any one attributes their existence to fate, because he calls the will or the power of God itself by the name of fate, let him keep his opinion, but correct his language. For why does he not say at first what he will say afterwards, when some one shall put the question to him what he means by fate? For when men hear that word, according to the ordinary use of the language, they simply understand by it the virtue of that particular position of the stars which may exist at the time when any one is born or conceived, which some separate altogether from the will of God, whilst others affirm that this also is dependent on that will. But those who are of opinion that apart from the will of God the stars determine what we shall do, or what good things we shall possess, or what evils we shall suffer, must be refused a hearing by all, not only by those who hold the true religion, but by those who wish to be the worshippers of any gods whatsoever, even false gods. For what does this opinion really amount to but this, that no god whatever is to be worshipped or prayed to? Against these, however, our present disputation is not intended to be directed, but against those who, in defence of those whom they think to be gods, oppose the Christian religion. They, however, who make the position of the stars depend on the divine will, and in a manner decree what character each man shall have, and what good or evil shall happen to him, if they think that these same stars have that power conferred upon them by the supreme power of God, in order that they may determine these things according to their will, do a great injury to the celestial sphere, in whose most brilliant senate, and most splendid senate-house, as it were, they suppose that wicked deeds are decreed to be done. Such deeds as that, if any terrestrial state should decree them, it would be condemned to overthrow by the decree of the whole human race. What judgment, then, is left to God concerning the deeds of men, who is lord both of the stars and of men, when to these deeds a celestial necessity is attributed? Or if they do not say that the stars, though they have indeed received a certain power from God, who is supreme, determine those things according to their own discretion, but simply that his commands are fulfilled by them instrumentally in the application and enforcing of such necessities, are we thus to think concerning God even what it seemed unworthy that we should think concerning the will of the stars? 
But if the stars are said rather to signify these things than to affect them, so that that position of the stars is, as it were, a kind of speech predicting, not causing future things, for this has been the opinion of men of no ordinary learning, certainly the mathematicians are not wont so to speak, saying, for example, Mars in such or such a position signifies a homicide, but makes a homicide. But nevertheless, though we grant that they do not speak as they ought, and that we ought to accept as the proper form of speech that employed by the philosophers in predicting those things which they think they discover in the position of the stars, how comes it that they have never been able to assign any cause why, in the life of twins, in their actions, in the events which befall them, in their professions, arts, honors, and other things pertaining to human life, also in their very death, there is often so great a difference, that as far as these things are concerned, many entire strangers are more like them than they are like each other, though separated at birth by the smallest interval of time, but at conception generated by the same act of copulation, and at the same moment. CHAPTER Two. Cicero says that the famous physician Hippocrates has left in writing that he had suspected that a certain pair of brothers were twins, from the fact that they both took ill at once, and their disease advanced to its crisis, and subsided in the same time in each of them. Posidonius the Stoic, who was much given to astrology, used to explain the fact by supposing that they had been born and conceived under the same constellation. In this question the conjecture of the physician is by far more worthy to be accepted, and approaches much nearer to credibility, since, according as the parents were affected in body at the time of copulation, so might the first elements of the fetuses have been affected, so that all that was necessary for their growth and development up till birth having been supplied from the body of the same mother, they might be born with like constitutions. Thereafter, nourished in the same house, on the same kinds of food, where they would have also the same kinds of air, the same locality, the same quality of water, which, according to the testimony of medical science, have a very great influence, good or bad, on the condition of bodily health, and where they would also be accustomed to the same kinds of exercise, they would have bodily constitutions so similar that they would be similarly affected with sickness at the same time, and by the same causes. But to wish to adduce that particular position of the stars which existed at the time when they were born or conceived as the cause of their being simultaneously affected with sickness, manifests the greatest arrogance, when so many beings of most diverse kinds, in the most diverse conditions, and subject to the most diverse events, may have been conceived and born at the same time, and in the same district, lying under the same sky. But we know that twins do not only act differently, and travel to very different places, but that they also suffer from different kinds of sickness, for which Hippocrates would give what is in my opinion the simplest reason, namely, that through diversity of food and exercise, which arises not from the constitution of the body, but from the inclination of the mind, they may have come to be different from each other in respect of health. Moreover, Posidonius, or any other asserter of the fatal influence of the stars, will have enough to do to find anything to say to this, if he be unwilling to impose upon the minds of the uninstructed in things of which they are ignorant. But as to what they attempt to make out from that very small interval of time elapsing between the births of twins, on account of that point in the heavens where the mark of the natal hour is placed, in which they call the horoscope, it is either disproportionately small to the diversity which is found in the dispositions, actions, habits, and fortunes of twins, or it is disproportionately great when compared with the estate of twins, whether low or high, which is the same for both of them, the cause for whose greatest difference they place, in every case, in the hour on which one is born.
And for this reason, if the one is born so immediately after the other that there is no change in the horoscope, I demand an entire similarity in all that respects them both, which can never be found in the case of any twins. But if the slowness of the birth of the second give time for a change in the horoscope, I demand different parents which twins can never have. CHAPTER Three. It is to no purpose, therefore, that that famous fiction about the potter's wheel is brought forward, which tells of the answer which Nagidius is said to have given when he was perplexed with this question, and on account of which he was called Figulus. For having whirled round the potter's wheel with all his strength, he marked it with ink, striking it twice with the utmost rapidity, so that the strokes seemed to fall in the very same part of it. Then, when the rotation had ceased, the marks which he had made were found upon the rim of the wheel at no small distance apart. Thus, said he, considering the great rapidity with which the celestial sphere revolves, even though twins were born with as short an interval between their births as there was between the strokes which I gave this wheel, that brief interval of time is equivalent to a very great distance in the celestial sphere. Hence, said he, come whatever dissimilitudes may be remarked in the habits and fortunes of twins. This argument is more fragile than the vessels which are fashioned by the rotation of that wheel. For if there is so much significance in the heavens which cannot be comprehended by observation of the constellations, that in the case of twins an inheritance may fall to the one and not to the other, why, in the case of others who are not twins, do they dare, having examined their constellations, to declare such things as pertain to that secret which no one can comprehend, and to attribute them to the precise moment of the birth of each individual? Now if such predictions in connection with the natal hours of others who are not twins are to be vindicated, on the ground that they are founded on the observation of more extended spaces in the heavens, whilst those very small moments of time which separated the births of twins, and correspond to minute portions of celestial space, are to be connected with trifling things about which the mathematicians are not wont to be consulted, for who would consult them as to when he is to sit, when to walk abroad, when and on what he is to dine? How can we be justified in so speaking, when we can point out such manifold diversity both in the habits, doings, and destinies of twins? Chapter 4 In the time of the ancient fathers, to speak concerning illustrious persons, there were born two twin brothers, the one so immediately after the other, that the first took hold of the heel of the second. So great a difference existed in their lives and manners, so great a dissimilarity in their actions, so great a difference in their parents' love for them respectively, that the very contrast between them produced even a mutual hostile antipathy. Do we mean, when we say that they were so unlike each other, that when the one was walking the other was sitting, when the one was sleeping the other was waking, which differences are such as are attributed to those minute portions of space which cannot be appreciated by those who note down the position of the stars which exists at the moment of one's birth, in order that the mathematicians may be consulted concerning it? One of these twins was for a long time a hired servant, the other never served. One of them was beloved by his mother, the other was not so. One of them lost that honor which was so much valued among their people, the other obtained it. And what shall we say of their wives, their children, and their possessions? How different they were in respect to all these! If, therefore, such things as these are connected with those minute intervals of time which elapse between the births of twins, and are not to be attributed to the constellations, wherefore are they predicted in the case of others from the examination of their constellations? And if, on the other hand, these things are said to be predicted because they are connected not with minute and inappreciable moments, but with intervals of time which can be observed and noted down, what purpose is that potter's wheel to serve in this matter, except it be to whirl round men who have hearts of clay, in order that they may be prevented from detecting the emptiness of the talk of the mathematicians. 
Chapter 5 Do not those very persons whom the medical sagacity of Hippocrates led him to suspect to be twins, because their disease was observed by him to develop to its crisis, and to subside again in the same time in each of them? Do not these, I say, serve as a sufficient refutation of those who wish to attribute to the influence of the stars that which was owing to a similarity of bodily constitution? For wherefore were they both sick of the same disease, and at the same time, and not the one after the other in the order of their birth? For certainly they could not both be born at the same time. Or if the fact of their having been born at different times by no means necessarily implies that they must be sick at different times, why do they contend that the difference in the time of their births was the cause of their difference in other things? Why could they travel in foreign parts at different times, marry at different times, beget children at different times, and do many other things at different times, by reason of their having been born at different times, and yet could not, for the same reason, also be sick at different times? For if a difference in the moment of birth changed the horoscope, and occasioned dissimilarity in all other things, why has that simultaneousness which belonged to their conception remained in their attacks of sickness? Or if the destinies of health are involved in the time of conception, but those of other things be said to be attached to the time of birth, they ought not to predict anything concerning health from an examination of the constellations of birth, when the hour of conception is not also given, that its constellations may be inspected. But if they say that they predict attacks of sickness without examining the horoscope of conception, because these are indicated by the moments of birth, how could they inform either of these twins when he would be sick from the horoscope of his birth, when the other also, who had not the same horoscope of birth, must of necessity fall sick at the same time? Again, I ask, if the distance of time between the births of twins is so great as to occasion a difference of their constellations on account of the difference of their horoscopes, and therefore of all the cardinal points to which so much influence is attributed, that even from such change there comes a difference of destiny, how is it possible that this should be so, since they cannot have been conceived at different times? Or, if two conceived at the same moment of time could have different destinies with respect to their births, why might not also two born at the same moment of time have different destinies for life and for death? For if the one moment in which both were conceived did not hinder that the one should be born before the other, why, if two were born at the same moment, should anything hinder them from dying at the same moment? If a simultaneous conception allows of twins being differently affected in the womb, why should not simultaneousness of birth allow of any two individuals having different fortunes in the world? And thus would all the fictions of this art, or rather delusion, be swept away. What strange circumstance is this, that two children conceived at the same time, nay, at the same moment, under the same position of the stars, have different fates which bring them to different hours of birth, whilst two children, born of two different mothers at the same moment of time, under one and the same position of the stars, cannot have different fates which shall conduct them by necessity to diverse manners of life and of death? Are they at conception as yet without destinies, because they can only have them if they be born? What therefore do they mean when they say that if the hour of the conception be found, many things can be predicted by these astrologers? From which also arose that story which is reiterated by some, that a certain sage chose an hour in which to lie with his wife, in order to secure his begetting an illustrious son. From this opinion also came that answer of Posidonius, the great astrologer and also philosopher, concerning those twins who were attacked with sickness at the same time, namely, that this had happened to them because they were conceived at the same time and born at the same time. 
for certainly he added conception lest it should be said to him that they could not both be born at the same time knowing that at any rate they must both have been conceived at the same time wishing thus to show that he did not attribute the fact of their being similarly and simultaneously affected with sickness to the similarity of their bodily constitutions as its proximate cause, but that he held that even in respect of the similarity of their health they were bound together by a sidereal connection. If, therefore, the time of conception has so much to do with the similarity of destinies, these same destinies ought not to be changed by the circumstances of birth. Or, if the destinies of twins be said to be changed because they are born at different times, why should we not rather understand that they had been already changed in order that they might be born at different times? Does not, then, the will of men living in the world change the destinies of birth, when the order of birth can change the destinies they had at conception? CHAPTER six. But even in the very conception of twins, which certainly occurs at the same moment in the case of both, it often happens that the one is conceived a male, and the other a female. I know two of different sexes who are twins. Both of them are alive, and in the flower of their age, and though they resemble each other in body, as far as difference of sex will permit, still they are very different in the whole scope and purpose of their lives, consideration being had of those differences which necessarily exist between the lives of males and females, the one holding the office of account, and being almost constantly away from home with the army and foreign service, the other never leaving her country's soil or her native district. Still more, and this is more incredible if the destinies of the stars are to be believed in, though it is not wonderful if we consider the wills of men and the free gifts of God. He is married, she is a sacred virgin. He has begotten a numerous offspring, she has never even married. But is not the virtue of the horoscope very great? I think I have said enough to show the absurdity of that. But, say those astrologers, whatever be the virtue of the horoscope in other respects, it is certainly of significance with respect to birth. But why not also with respect to conception, which takes place undoubtedly with one act of copulation? And indeed, so great is the force of nature, that after a woman has once conceived, she ceases to be liable to conception. Or were they, perhaps, changed at birth, either he into a male or she into a female, because of the difference in their horoscopes? But whilst it is not altogether absurd to say that certain sidereal influences have some power to cause differences in bodies alone, as, for instance, we see that the seasons of the year come round by the approaching and receding of the sun, and that certain kinds of things are increased in size or diminished by the waxings and wanings of the moon, such as sea urchins, oysters, and the wonderful tides of the ocean, it does not follow that the wills of men are to be made subject to the position of the stars. The astrologers, however, when they wish to bind our actions also to the constellations, only set us on investigating whether, even in these bodies, the changes may not be attributable to some other than a sidereal cause. For what is there which more intimately concerns a body than its sex? And yet under the same position of the stars twins of different sexes may be conceived. Wherefore, what greater absurdity can be affirmed or believed than that the position of the stars, which was the same for both of them at the time of conception, could not cause that the one child should not have been of a different sex from her brother, with whom she had a common constellation, whilst the position of the stars, which existed at the hour of their birth, could cause that she should be separated from him by the great distance between marriage and holy virginity? CHAPTER seven. Now will any one bring forward this, that in choosing certain particular days for particular actions, men bring about certain new destinies for their actions? That man, for instance, according to this doctrine, was not born to have an illustrious son, but rather a contemptible one, and therefore, being a man of learning, he chose an hour in which to lie with his wife. 
He made, therefore, a destiny which he did not have before, and from that destiny of his own making something began to be fatal which was not contained in the destiny of his natal hour. Oh, singular stupidity! A day is chosen on which to marry, and for this reason I believe that unless a day be chosen, the marriage may fall on an unlucky day and turn out an unhappy one. What then becomes of what the stars have already decreed at the hour of birth? Can a man be said to change, by an act of choice, that which has already been determined for him, whilst that which he himself has determined in the choosing of a day cannot be changed by another power? Thus, if men alone, and not all things under heaven, are subjected to the influence of the stars, why do they choose some days as suitable for planting vines or trees, or for sowing grain, other days as suitable for taming beasts on, or for putting the males to the females, that the cows and mares may be impregnated, and for such like things? If it be said that certain chosen days have an influence on these things, because the constellations rule over all terrestrial bodies, animate and inanimate, according to differences in moments of time, let it be considered what innumerable multitudes of beings are born, or arise, or take their origin at the very same instant of time, which come to ends so different that they may persuade any little boy that these observations about days are ridiculous. For who is so mad as to dare affirm that all trees, all herbs, all beasts, serpents, birds, fishes, worms, have each separately their own moments of birth or commencement? Nevertheless, men are wont, in order to try the skill of the mathematicians, to bring before them the constellations of dumb animals, the constellations of whose birth they diligently observe at home with a view to this discovery, and they prefer those mathematicians to all others who say, from the inspection of the constellations, that they indicate the birth of a beast and not of a man. They also dare tell what kind of beast it is, whether it is a wool-bearing beast, or a beast suited for carrying burthens, or one fit for the plough, or for watching a house. For the astrologers are also tried with respect to the fates of dogs, and their answers concerning these are followed by shouts of admiration on the part of those who consult them. They so deceive men as to make them think that during the birth of a man the births of all other beings are suspended, so that not even a fly comes to life at the same time that he is being born under the same region of the heavens. And if this be admitted with respect to the fly, the reasoning cannot stop there, but must ascend from flies till it lead them up to camels and elephants. Nor are they willing to attend to this, that when a day has been chosen whereon to sow a field, so many grains fall into the ground simultaneously, germinate simultaneously, spring up, come to perfection, and ripen simultaneously, and yet of all the ears which are coeval, and so to speak, congerminal, some are destroyed by mildew, some are devoured by the birds, and some are pulled by men. How can they say that all these had their different constellations when they see them coming to so different ends? Will they confess that it is folly to choose days for such things, and to affirm that they do not come within the sphere of the celestial decree, whilst they subject men alone to the stars, on whom alone in the world God had bestowed free wills? All these things being considered, we have good reason to believe that when the astrologers give very many wonderful answers, it is to be attributed to the occult inspiration of spirits not of the best kind, whose care it is to insinuate into the minds of men, and to confirm in them, those false and noxious opinions concerning the fatal influence of the stars, and not to their marking and inspecting of horoscopes, according to some kind of art which in reality has no existence. CHAPTER Eight. 
But as to those who call by the name of faith, not the disposition of the stars, as it may exist when any creature is conceived or born, or commences its existence, but the whole connection and train of causes which makes everything become what it does become, there is no need that I should labor and strive with them in a merely verbal controversy, since they attribute the so-called order and connection of causes to the will and power of God Most High, who is most rightly and most truly believed to know all things before they come to pass, and to leave nothing unordained, from whom are all powers, although the wills of all are not from him. Now that it is chiefly the will of God Most High, whose power extends itself irresistibly through all things which they call fate, is proved by the following verses, of which, if I mistake not, Aeneas Seneca is the author. Father Supreme, that ruler of the lofty heavens, lead me wherever it is thy pleasure. I will give a prompt obedience, making no delay. Lo, here I am. Promptly I come to do thy sovereign will. If thy command shall thwart my inclination, I will still follow thee groaning, and the work assigned, with all the suffering of a mind repugnant, will perform being evil, which, had I been good, I should have undertaken and performed, though hard, with virtuous cheerfulness. The fates do lead the man that follows willing, but the man that is unwilling, him they drag." Most evidently, in this last verse, he calls that fate, which he had before called the will of the Father Supreme, whom, he says, he is ready to obey that he may be led, being willing, not dragged, being unwilling, since the fates do lead the man that follows willing, but the man that is unwilling, him they drag. The following Homeric lines, which Cicero translates into Latin, also favor this opinion. Such are the minds of men, as is the light which Father Jove himself does pour illustrious over the fruitful earth. Not that Cicero wishes that a poetical sentiment should have any weight in a question like this, for when he says that the Stoics, when asserting the power of fate, were in the habit of using these verses from Homer, he is not treating concerning the opinion of that poet, but concerning that of those philosophers, since by these verses which they quote in connection with the controversy which they hold about fate, is most distinctly manifested what it is which they reckon fate, since they call by the name of Jupiter him whom they reckon the supreme God, from whom, they say, hangs the whole chain of fates. Chapter 9 The manner in which Cicero addresses himself to the task of refuting the Stoics shows that he did not think he could effect anything against them in argument unless he had first demolished divination. And this he attempts to accomplish by denying that there is any knowledge of future things, and maintains with all his might that there is no such knowledge either in God or man, and that there is no prediction of events. Thus he both denies the foreknowledge of God, and attempts by vain arguments, and by opposing to himself certain oracles very easy to be refuted, to overthrow all prophecy, even such as is clearer than the light, though even these oracles are not refuted by him. But in refuting these conjectures of the mathematicians, his argument is triumphant, because truly these are such as destroy and refute themselves. Nevertheless, they are far more tolerable who assert the fatal influence of the stars than they who deny the foreknowledge of future events. For to confess that God exists, and at the same time to deny that he has foreknowledge of future things, is the most manifest folly. This Cicero himself saw, and therefore attempted to assert the doctrine embodied in the words of Scripture, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. That, however, he did not do in his own person, for he saw how odious and offensive such an opinion would be. And therefore, in his book on the nature of the gods, he makes Cotta, 
dispute concerning this against the Stoics, and preferred to give his own opinion in favour of Lucilius Balbus, to whom he assigned the defence of the Stoical position, rather than in favour of Cotta, who maintained that no divinity exists. However, in his book on divination, he in his own person most openly opposes the doctrine of the prescience of future things. But all this he seems to do in order that he may not grant the doctrine of fate, and by so doing destroy free will. For he thinks that the knowledge of future things being once conceded, fate follows as so necessary a consequence that it cannot be denied. But let these perplexing debatings and disputations of the philosophers go on as they may. We, in order that we may confess the Most High and True God himself, do confess his will, supreme power, and prescience. Neither let us be afraid, lest after all we do not do by will that which we do by will, because he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew that we would do it. It was this which Cicero was afraid of, and therefore opposed foreknowledge. The Stoics also maintain that all things do not come to pass by necessity, although they contended that all things happen according to destiny. What is it, then, that Cicero feared in the prescience of future things? Doubtless it was this, that if all future things have been foreknown, they will happen in the order in which they have been foreknown, and if they come to pass in this order, there is a certain order of things foreknown by God, and if a certain order of things, then a certain order of causes, for nothing can happen which is not preceded by some efficient cause. But if there is a certain order of causes, according to which everything happens which does happen, then by fate, says he, all things happen which do happen. But if this be so, then is there nothing in our own power, and there is no such thing as freedom of will. And if we grant that, says he, the whole economy of human life is subverted. In vain are laws enacted, in vain are reproaches, praises, chidings, exhortations had recourse to, and there is no justice whatever in the appointments of rewards for the good, and punishment for the wicked. And that consequences so disgraceful and absurd and pernicious to humanity may not follow, Cicero chooses to reject the foreknowledge of future things, and shuts up the religious mind to this alternative, to make choice between two things, either that something is in our own power, or that there is foreknowledge, both of which cannot be true, but if the one is affirmed, the other is thereby denied. He, therefore, like a truly great and wise man, and one who consulted very much and very skilfully for the good of humanity, of those two chose the freedom of the will, to confirm which he denied the foreknowledge of future things, and thus, wishing to make men free, he makes them sacrilegious. But the religious mind chooses both, confesses both, and maintains both by the faith of piety. But how so, says Cicero, for the knowledge of future things being granted, there follows a chain of consequences which ends in this, that there can be nothing depending on our own free wills. And further, if there is anything depending on our wills, we must go backwards by the same steps of reasoning, till we arrive at the conclusion that there is no foreknowledge of future things. For we go backwards through all the steps in the following order. If there is free will, all things do not happen according to fate. If all things do not happen according to fate, there is not a certain order of causes. And if there is not a certain order of causes, neither is there a certain order of things foreknown by God. For things cannot come to pass except they are preceded by efficient causes. But if there is no fixed and certain order of causes foreknown by God, all things cannot be said to happen according as he foreknew that they would happen. And further, if it is not true that all things happen just as they have been foreknown by him, there is not, says he, in God any foreknowledge of future events. Now against the sacrilegious and impious darings of reason we assert both that God knows all things before they come to pass, and that we do by our free will whatsoever we know and feel to be done by us, only because we will it. 
but that all things come to pass by fate we do not say nay we affirm that nothing comes to pass by fate for we demonstrate that the name of fate as it is wont to be used by those who speak of fate meaning thereby the position of the stars at the time of each one's conception or birth is an unmeaning word for astrology itself is a delusion but in order of causes in which the highest efficiency is attributed to the will of God, we neither deny nor do we designate it by the name of fate, unless perhaps we may understand fate to mean that which is spoken, deriving it from Fari to speak, for we cannot deny that it is written in the sacred scriptures, God hath spoken once, these two things have I heard, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O God, belongeth mercy, for thou wilt render unto every man according to his works." Now the expression, once hath he spoken, is to be understood as meaning immovably, that is, unchangeably hath he spoken, inasmuch as he knows unchangeably all things which shall be, and all things which he will do. We might then use the word fate in the sense it bears when derived from fari, to speak, had it not already come to be understood in another sense, into which I am unwilling that the hearts of men should unconsciously slide. But it does not follow that though there is for God a certain order of all causes, there must therefore be nothing depending on the free exercise of our own wills, for our wills themselves are included in that order of causes which is certain to God, and is embraced by his foreknowledge, for human wills are also causes of human actions. And he who foreknew all the causes of things would certainly, among those causes, have not been ignorant of our wills. For even that very concession which Cicero himself makes is enough to refute him in this argument. For what does it help him to say that nothing takes place without a cause, but that every cause is not fatal, there being a fortuitous cause, a natural cause, and a voluntary cause? It is sufficient that he confesses that whatever happens must be preceded by a cause. For we say that those causes which are called fortuitous are not a mere name for the absence of causes, but are only latent, and we attribute them either to the will of the true God, or to that of spirits of some kind or other other. And as to natural causes, we by no means separate them from the will of him who is the author and framer of all nature. But now as to voluntary causes. They are referable either to God, or to angels, or to men, or to animals of whatever description, if indeed those instinctive movements of animals devoid of reason, by which, in accordance with their own nature, they seek or shun various things, are to be called wills. And when I speak of the wills of angels, I mean either the wills of good angels, whom we call the angels of God, or of the wicked angels, whom we call the angels of the devil, or demons. Also by the wills of men I mean the wills either of the good or of the wicked. And from this we conclude that there are no efficient causes of all things which come to pass, unless voluntary causes, that is, such as belong to that nature which is the spirit of life. For the air or wind is called spirit, but inasmuch as it is a body, it is not the spirit of life. The spirit of life, therefore, which quickens all things, and is the creator of every body, and of every created spirit, is God himself, the uncreated spirit. In his supreme will resides the power which acts on the wills of all created spirits, helping the good, judging the evil, controlling all, granting power to some, not granting it to others. For as he is the creator of all natures, so also is he the bestower of all powers, not of all wills. For wicked wills are not from him, being contrary to nature, which is from him. As to bodies, they are more subject to wills. Some to our wills, by which I mean the wills of all living mortal creatures, but more to the wills of men than of beasts. But all of them are most of all subject to the will of God, to whom all wills also are subject, since they have no power except what he has bestowed upon them. The cause of things, therefore, which makes but is not made, is God. But all other causes both make and are made. Such are all created spirits, and especially the rational. 
Material causes, therefore, which may rather be said to be made than to make, are not to be reckoned among efficient causes, because they can only do what the wills of spirits do by them. How then does an order of causes which is certain to the foreknowledge of God necessitate that there should be nothing which is dependent on our wills, when our wills themselves have a very important place in the order of causes? Cicero, then, contends with those who call this order of causes fatal, or rather designate this order itself by the name of fate, to which we have an abhorrence, especially on account of the word, which men have become accustomed to understand as meaning what is not true. But whereas he denies that the order of all causes is most certain, and perfectly clear to the prescience of God, we detest his opinion more than the Stoics do. For he either denies that God exists, which indeed in an assumed personage he has laboured to do in his book De Natura Deorum, or if he confesses that he exists, but denies that he is prescient of future things, what is that but just the fool saying in his heart there is no God? For one who is not prescient of all future things is not God. Wherefore our wills also have just so much power as God willed and foreknew that they should have, and therefore whatever power they have, they have it within most certain limits, and whatever they are to do, they are most assuredly to do, for he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew that they would have the power to do it, and would do it. Wherefore, if I should choose to apply the name of fate to anything at all, I should rather say that fate belongs to the weaker of two parties, will to the stronger, who has the other in his power, than that the freedom of our will is excluded by that order of causes which, by an unusual application of the word peculiar to themselves, the Stoics call fate. Chapter 10. Wherefore neither is that necessity to be feared, for dread of which the Stoics laboured to make such distinctions among the causes of things as should enable them to rescue certain things from the dominion of necessity, and to subject others to it. Among those things which they wished not to be subject to necessity, they placed our wills, knowing that they would not be free if subjected to necessity. For if that is to be called our necessity, which is not in our power, but even though we be unwilling effects what it can effect, as, for instance, the necessity of death, it is manifest that our wills by which we live uprightly or wickedly are not under such a necessity, for we do many things which, if we were not willing, we should certainly not do. This is primarily true of the act of willing itself. For if we will, it is, if we will not, it is not. For we should not will if we were unwilling. But if we define necessity to be that according to which we say that it is necessary that anything be of such or such a nature, or be done in such and such a manner, I know not why we should have any dread of that necessity taking away the freedom of our will. For we do not put the life of God or the foreknowledge of God under necessity, if we should say that it is necessary that God should live for ever and foreknow all things, as neither is his power diminished when we say that he cannot die or fall into error, for this is in such a way impossible to him, that if it were possible for him, he would be of less power. But assuredly he is rightly called omnipotent, though he can neither die nor fall into error. For he is called omnipotent on account of his doing what he wills, not on account of his suffering what he wills not. For if that should befall him, he would by no means be omnipotent. Wherefore he cannot do some things for the very reason that he is omnipotent. So also when we say that it is necessary that when we will, we will by free choice, in so saying we both affirm what is true beyond doubt, and do not still subject our wills thereby to a necessity which destroys liberty. Our wills, therefore, exist as wills, and do themselves whatever we do by willing, and which would not be done if we were unwilling. But when any one suffers anything, being unwilling, by the will of another, even in that case will retains its essential validity. We do not mean the will of the party who inflicts the suffering, for we resolve it into the power of God. 
For if a will should simply exist, but not be able to do what it wills, it would be overborne by a more powerful will. Nor would this be the case unless there had existed will, and that not the will of the other party, but the will of him who willed, but was not able to accomplish what he willed. Therefore whatsoever a man suffers contrary to his own will, he ought not to attribute to the will of men, or of angels, or of any created spirit, but rather to his will who gives power to wills. It is not the case, therefore, that because God foreknew what would be in the power of our wills, there is for that reason nothing in the power of our wills. For he who foreknew this did not foreknow nothing. Moreover, if he who foreknew what would be in the power of our wills did not foreknow nothing but something, assuredly, even though he did foreknow, there is something in the power of our wills. Therefore we are by no means compelled, either retaining the prescience of God to take away the freedom of the will, or retaining the freedom of the will to deny the prescient of future things, which is impious. But we embrace both. We faithfully and sincerely confess both. The former that we may believe well, the latter that we may live well. For he lives ill who does not believe well concerning God. Wherefore be it far from us in order to maintain our freedom to deny the prescience of him by whose help we are or shall be free. Consequently, it is not in vain that laws are enacted, and that reproaches, exhortations, praises, and vituperations are had recourse to, for these also he foreknew, and they are of great avail, even as great as he foreknew that they would be of. Prayers also are of avail to procure those things which he foreknew that he would grant to those who offered them, and with justice have rewards been appointed for good deeds and punishment for sins. For a man does not therefore sin because God foreknew that he would sin. Nay, it cannot be doubted that it is the man himself who sins when he does sin, because he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew not that fate, or fortune, or something else would sin, but that the man himself would sin, who, if he wills not, sins not. But if he shall not will to sin, even this did God foreknow. Chapter 11 Therefore God, supreme and true, with his word and his Holy Spirit, which three are one, one God omnipotent, creator and maker of every soul and of every body, by whose gift all are happy who are happy through verity and not through vanity, who made man a rational animal consisting of soul and body, who, when he sinned, neither permitted him to go unpunished nor left him without mercy, who has given to the good and to the evil, being in common with stones, vegetable life in common with trees, sensuous life in common with brutes, intellectual life in common with angels alone, from whom is every mode, every species, every order, from whom are measure, number, weight, from whom is everything which has an existence in nature, of whatever kind it be, and of whatever value, from whom are the seeds of forms, and the forms of seeds, and the motion of seeds, and of forms, who gave also to flesh its origin, beauty, health, reproductive fecundity, disposition of members, and the salutary concord of its parts, who also to the irrational soul has given memory, sense, appetite, but to the rational soul, in addition to these, has given intelligence and will, who has not left, not to speak of heaven and earth, angels and men, but not even the entrails of the smallest and most contemptible animal, or the feather of a bird, or the little flower of a plant, or the leaf of a tree, without an harmony, and, as it were, a mutual peace among all its parts. That God can never be believed to have left the kingdoms of men, their dominations and servitudes, outside of the laws of his providence. CHAPTER Twelve. Wherefore, let us go on to consider what virtues of the Romans they were, which the true God, in whose power are also the kingdoms of the earth, condescended to help in order to raise the empire, and also for what reason he did so. 
and in order to discuss this question on clearer ground we have written the former books to show that the power of those gods who they thought were to be worshipped with such trifling and silly rites had nothing to do in this matter and also what we have already accomplished in the present volume to refute the doctrine of fate lest any one who might have been already persuaded that the roman empire was not extended and preserved by the worship of these gods might still be attributing its extension and preservation to some kind of fate rather than to the most powerful will of god most high the ancient and primitive romans therefore though their history shows as that like all the other nations with the sole exception of the hebrews they worshipped false gods and sacrificed victims not to god but to demons have nevertheless this commendation bestowed on them by their historian that they were greedy of praise prodigal of wealth desirous of great glory and content with a moderate fortune glory they most ardently loved for it they wished to live for it they did not hesitate to die every other desire was repressed by the strength of their passion for that one thing at length their country itself because it seemed inglorious to serve but glorious to rule and to command they first earnestly desired to be free and then to be mistress hence it was that not enduring the domination of kings they put the government into the hands of two chiefs holding office for a year who were called consuls not kings or lords but royal pomp seemed inconsistent with the administration of a ruler regentis or the benevolence of one who consults that is for the public good consulentis but rather with the haughtiness of a lord dominantis king tarquin therefore having been banished and the consular government having been instituted it followed as the same author already alluded to says in his praises of the romans that the state grew with amazing rapidity after it obtained liberty so great a desire of glory had taken possession of it that eagerness for praise and desire of glory then was that which accomplished those many wonderful things laudable doubtless and glorious according to human judgment the same Sallust praises the great men of his own time, Marcus Cato and Caius Caesar, saying that for a long time the Republic had no one great in virtue, but that within his memory there had been these two men of eminent virtue in very different pursuits. Now among the praises which he pronounces on Caesar he put this, that he wished for a great empire, an army, and a new war, that he might have a sphere where his genius and virtue might shine forth thus it was ever the prayer of men of heroic character that bellona would excite miserable nations to war and lash them into agitation with her bloody scourge so that there might be occasion for the display of their valour this forsooth is what that desire of praise and thirst for glory did wherefore by the love of liberty in the first place afterwards also by that of domination and through the desire of praise and glory they achieved many great things and their most eminent poet testifies to their having been prompted by all these motives porcena there with pride elate bids rome to tarquin ope her gate with arms he hems the city in aeneas's sons stand firm to win at that time it was their greatest ambition either to die bravely or to live free but when liberty was obtained so great a desire of glory took possession of them that liberty alone was not enough unless domination also should be sought their great ambition being that which the same poet puts into the mouth of jupiter nay juno's self whose wild alarms set ocean earth and heaven in arms shall change for smiles her moody frown and vie with me in zeal to crown rome's sons the nation of the gown so stands my will there comes a day while rome's great ages hold their way when old Asaricus's sons shall quit them on the myrmidons or thea and mycenae reign and humble argos to their chain 
which things indeed virgil makes jupiter predict his future whilst in reality he was only himself passing in review in his own mind things which were already done and which were beheld by him as present realities but i have mentioned them with the intention of showing that next to liberty the romans so highly esteemed domination that it received a place among those things on which they bestowed the greatest praise hence also it is that that poet preferring to the arts of the other nations those arts which peculiarly belong to the romans namely the arts of ruling and commanding and of subjugating and vanquishing nations says others belike with happier grace from bronze or stone shall call the face plead doubtful causes map the skies and tell when planets set or rise but roman thou do thou control the nations far and wide be this thy genius to impose the rule of peace on vanquished foes show pity to the humble soul and crush the sons of pride these arts they exercised with the more skill the less they gave themselves up to pleasures and to enervation of body and mind in coveting and amassing riches and through these corrupting morals by extorting them from the miserable citizens and lavishing them on base stage-players hence these men of base character who abounded when sallust wrote and virgil sang these things did not seek after honours and glory by these arts but by treachery and deceit wherefore the same says but at first it was rather ambition than avarice that stirred the minds of men which vice however is nearer to virtue for glory honour and power are desired alike by the good man and by the ignoble but the former he says strives onward to them by the true way whilst the other knowing nothing of the good arts seeks them by fraud and deceit and what is meant by seeking the attainment of glory honour and power by good arts is to seek them by virtue and not by deceitful intrigue for the good and the ignoble man alike desire these things but the good man strives to overtake them by the true way the way is virtue along which he presses as to the goal of possession namely to glory honour and power now that this was a sentiment ingrained in the roman mind is indicated even by the temples of their gods for they built in very close proximity the temples of virtue and honour worshipping as gods the gifts of god hence we can understand what they who were good thought to be the end of virtue and to what they ultimately referred it namely to honour for as to the bad they had no virtue though they desired honour and strove to possess it by fraud and deceit praise of a higher kind is bestowed upon cato for he says of him the less he sought glory the more it followed him we say praise of a higher kind for the glory with the desire of which the romans burned is the judgment of men thinking well of men and therefore virtue is better which is content with no human judgment save that of one's own conscience whence the apostle says for this is our glory the testimony of our conscience and in another place he says but let every one prove his own work and then he shall have glory in himself and not in another that glory honour and power therefore which they desired for themselves and to which the good sought to attain by good arts should not be sought after by virtue but virtue by them for there is no true virtue except that which is directed towards that end in which is the highest and ultimate good of man wherefore even the honours which cato sought he ought not to have sought but the state ought to have conferred them on him unsolicited on account of his virtues but of the two great romans of that time cato was he whose virtue was by far the nearest to the true idea of virtue wherefore let us refer to the opinion of cato himself to discover what was the judgment he had formed concerning the condition of the state both then and in former times i do not think he says that it was by arms that our ancestors made the republic great from being small had that been the case the republic of our day would have been by far more flourishing than that of their times 
for the number of our allies and citizens is far greater, and besides we possess a far greater abundance of armor and of horses than they did. But it was other things than these that made them great, and we have none of them. Industry at home, just government without, a mind free in deliberation, addicted neither to crime nor to lust. Instead of these we have luxury and avarice, poverty in the state, opulence among its citizens, we laud riches, we follow laziness, there is no difference made between the good and the bad, all the rewards of virtue are got possession of by intrigue. And no wonder, when every individual consults only for his own good, when ye are the slaves of pleasure at home, and in public affairs, of money and favor, no wonder that an onslaught is made upon the unprotected republic." He who hears these words of Cato or of Sallust probably thinks that such praise bestowed on the ancient Romans was applicable to all of them, or at least to very many of them. It is not so. Otherwise the things which Cato himself writes, and which I have quoted in the second book of this work, would not be true. In that passage he says, that even from the very beginning of the state wrongs were committed by the more powerful, which led to the separation of the people from the fathers, besides which there were other internal dissensions, and the only time in which there existed a just and moderate administration was after the banishment of the kings, and that no longer than whilst they had cause to be afraid of Tarquin, and were carrying on the grievous war which had been undertaken on his account against Etruria, but afterwards the fathers oppressed the people as slaves, flogged them as the kings had done, drove them from their land, and to the exclusion of all others held the government in their own hands alone. And to these discords, whilst the fathers were wishing to rule, and the people were unwilling to serve, the second Punic War put an end. For again great fear began to press upon their disquieted minds, holding them back from those distractions by another and greater anxiety, and bringing them back to civil concord. But the great things which were then achieved were accomplished through the administration of a few men, who were good in their own way. And by the wisdom and forethought of these few good men, which first enabled the Republic to endure these evils and mitigated them, it waxed greater and greater. And this the same historian affirms when he says that reading and hearing of the many illustrious achievements of the Roman people in peace and in war, by land and by sea, he wished to understand what it was by which these great things were specially sustained for he knew that very often the Romans had with a small company contended with great legions of the enemy, and he knew also that with small resources they had carried on wars with opulent kings. And he says that after having given the matter much consideration, it seemed evident to him that the preeminent virtue of a few citizens had achieved the whole, and that that explained how poverty overcame wealth and small numbers great multitudes. But, he adds, after that the state had been corrupted by luxury and indolence, again the republic, by its own greatness, was able to bear the vices of its magistrates and generals. Wherefore, even the praises of Cato are only applicable to a few, for only a few were possessed of that virtue which leads men to pursue after glory, honor, and power by the true way, that is, by virtue itself. This industry at home of which Cato speaks was the consequence of a desire to enrich the public treasury, even though the result should be poverty at home. And therefore, when he speaks of the evil arising out of the corruption of morals, he reverses the expression, and says, Poverty in the state, riches at home. End of Book 5 Preface in Chapters 1-12 through 12. Recording by Darren L. Slider Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org